Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show. That's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. You can rate and review the shows there on Facebook, or you can go to the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, where there's a whole little section just for the show. This episode is part of the Wings Over Australia sub-series. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Royal Australian Air Force Museum at uh, Point Cook, the home of Australian military aviation. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And today I'm being your host here at Point Cook. I'm James Kitely, the co-host of the, uh, of the tour. And we're here at a very special museum to me. Um, so the Royal Australian Air Force Museum, or the RAF Museum as we usually call it, uh, we have a comprehensive display which we're about to go through of the history of military aviation in Australia. Initially Army aviation and then latterly Air Force aviation. Well, James, what have you got to show us? Oh, there's all sorts of great stuff, Dave. So <laughs> we'll start off with a, a model of the Bristol military biplane, or box kite as it's known to its friends, which we're looking at here um, down um, uh, in one of the display cabinets. Um, that shows the very first aircraft that flew here on the 1st of March 1914. And that was a, um, a very significant day. It was the first military flight in Australia. Um, and interestingly, one of the things we're proud of here is we've been flying aircraft here continuously since 1914. Um, so it's been a continuously operated military airfield since that 1st of March date and we're just a little over a century there and we're very pleased with that. There's many other bases that are founded around that sort of time um, but uh, nobody else that we're aware of has actually had that continuous military presence throughout. That's quite impressive. It, we, we're 
very pleased with it and, and um, uh, we'd still treasure the, uh, the base on that basis. It includes, for instance, that the, uh, the whole airfield and key parts of it are listed as uh, both a Victorian uh, Heritage Register and uh, National Heritage Register for Australia. And Victorian meaning the state, it's not... not Absolutely. About... Here when we talk about Victoria, the assumption is it's the place rather than anything else indeed. Um, next to the box kite is a little favourite object. It looks like a very early American football helmet uh, made of leather with a kind of a big ring around it, the sides of it. Um, and that's one of the original helmets that the pilots of the box kite used back in the early days. Uh, unusual to have safety devices then. The box kite had no seat belt. You just sat in the seat, hung on to the throttle, mixture control, and the sticker was a, a rotary engine. And there's a great account of Harrison, one of the pilots there, and uh, he says the aircraft hit a, hit a, a dip, I think he said in his account, and uh, I arrived in the seat just before the aircraft came to the ground. <laughs> Another little item here, uh, we're just moving a little bit further on, is we have uh, uniform tunics of uh, wing originally Wing Commander Stanley Goble, one of the very important people early in the Air Force. Um, and uh, as Dave and I can see, the, uh, he's in, a, in Air Force blue and also a, a sort of khaki, uh, more tropical jacket. The Air Force blue jacket is interesting and, and a wonderful thing we find today in that it uh, allows us to um, d distinguish Australian airmen in, the in a group of Commonwealth airmen because this had a different dip arrangement in the die vats and so Australian uh, Royal Australian Air Force uniforms were always a darker blue to all the others. So even in a black and white photograph of Bomber Command for instance very easy to pick out the Aussies. Uh, you don't even need to distinguish the RAAF in the, in the wings or the, um, or the brevet. You should be getting a bit of the background soundscape we have here at the museum and um, that's one of the, the nice things we have um, to sort of give people an impression of the environment. We have a comprehensive model collection uh, and as Dave can see we have uh, medals everywhere um, of from some of the, the critical people in the early days and then later highlights of the Air Force overall. But we're just going to cross over to the other side and look at a completely different element. As I look around, uh, um, for New Zealanders, it's a, quite a similar concept to the Royal New Zealand Air Force Museum at Wigram. Absolutely, um, yes. And one of the things that Dave and I were talking about before we started this podcast is um, how much we I've been impressed by the Wigram display, how much uh, proportionately uh, the Wigram is a significantly uh, not that much smaller than, than what we have here, uh, considering the Royal Australian Air Force was generally significantly larger than the, the RNZAF. Um, I think Wigram does a, a great job and, and is, a, is a great co uh, sort of cousin museum. Yeah. Um, another thing that uh, Dave and I have talked about is I've spent a bit of time at the, um, the Canadian equivalent to, at uh, RCAF, uh, Royal Canadian Air Force Trenton, um, and that's, that's um, a kind of deja vu thing as well because uh, very similar to the New Zealand and Australian museums, same sort of thing going on there, but they have maple leaves, ma sorry, maple leaves in the middle of their roundels. They have um, um, slightly better packed lunches, I think, in a lot of cases, and you hear a lot more French being talked by the, uh, the guys there. Right, right. Now, this section we're looking at obviously uh, refers to the aircraft that were built in Australia, yes. um, either under licence or home built. Um, Home design, I should say, not home builds. <laughs> <laughs> well, we think of them as home build in a way, but yes, it, the important point here was obviously mass production. And um, Dave, what, you tell us what we're looking at in front of you here. Well, there's a, there's a uh, CAC Rolls-Royce Merlin engine. There's yes, Merlin, there's a Merlin. Yep. It is indeed. And uh, in the background, there's a uh, very big photo of the production line of the um, CAC Mustangs, the uh, Australian-built version of the P51D. Indeed. And, uh, and then beside it is the... Um, 
famously Australian boomerang. Uh, which, which we will be having a look at a, at a, a rare blue boomerang later, and we will also be seeing a, a boomerang flying um, at Tamora. But yeah, the, C, the CAC Merlin is uh, one of the sort of odd jewels in the crown we have here. Most people don't know, um, Australia was one of the few countries to actually license produce the Merlin along with America, and obviously several places in the UK. You could actually say the Scottish got to license build um, Merlins as well because they were built in Glasgow but um, we're very proud we only built a very few because they were gearing up to build these for uh, equipping um, Australian built Lincolns um, which would have been used as part of Tiger Force attacking Japan um, from this point of view uh, the, from you know the Australian service personnel's point of view a good thing happened which was the atomic bombs which meant we didn't need those aircraft so numbers seem to vary but we seem there's less than 180 of the <coughs> CAC uh, Rolls-Royce Merlins um, built so if you ever see one with and we're looking at it here the instead of just saying Rolls-Royce or Packard on the, the cylinder head block if you see CAC Rolls-Royce we'd love to hear from you about it because those are rare Going back to what David was just saying about the picture at the background, if you could actually look through that wall into the far distance, you would be actually looking at where that production line was on the other side of the bay. Okay. Um, where we're standing now in that exact direction takes us to um, the Fisherman's Bend plant of the Commonwealth Air Aircraft Corporation. Right. Uh, very important to me personally, um, uh, one of the uh, key things from my early um, life is my grandmother was one of the very first employees of CAC in 1936 when the company was set up. She was uh, in the typing pool um, and, uh, and uh, acting as receptionist typist, nothing you know particularly glamorous back then, um, but it's a, it's a heritage I'm enormously proud of and anybody I think with CAC heritage uh, would, would agree it's uh, something that uh, we think of as very important. And also just to bring it back to the New Zealand perspective, um, these days is one of the two flying Mustangs that we have in New Zealand is a CAC built one, that's Dove of peace that lives down at Wanaka. Indeed, there's quite a few of the surviving Mustangs um, around are actually CAC aircraft. Funnily enough, a few of them with North American aviation plaques on them as well. There's yeah. a bit of finagling goes on around the world. We won't talk too much about that. But um, yeah, we, we like to say our Mustangs are better than the, boar, the those cheap wartime efforts that were pushed out because ours were mostly built post-war. But it's just like the uh, CAC built Sabres, which were meant to be really the top of the range of the the uh, North American designed Sabre. They had the better engines in them uh, and I guess the Canadians also have the same claim with their uh, it's, it uh, it's a little rivalry I have yeah. with my Canadian friends online. Hello Canadians. Um, yes you've got your Sabre, it's a lovely Sabre but we reckon our Sabre is more grunty than your Sabre. Ours <laughs> has the um, has the uh, the Rolls-Royce Avon engine and uh, uh, 20mm uh, Aiden Cannon. Uh, the Canadian one is definitely an improvement on the North American design and generally regarded as a very nice flying one. Interestingly we the um, one of the flying Sabres we have here is in, in silver, both of the two we have. The uh, Canadians actually, their, uh, their uh, flying sabre is in gold, so we have a silver one, they have a gold one, and I would love, love to have a fly-off, either Canada or here, between those two. So here we have a, a World War One trench display, and as I say, spotting for the guns. Yes, it's sort of showing here why you needed aviation in the first war. And right down to today, we have a great photograph of an RE-8 observer in front of us there and a couple of guys in this mock-up trench uh, with barbed wire and the whole thing trying to look over the top. And if we lean forward, Dave, we should be able to see up and you can see over the top a model RE-8 um, spotting for the guns. Yep, it's up there and there's also a mural that uh, has some other aircraft in it. Indeed, and it's sort of putting into context the whole um, situation of what these guys were trying to do um, in, in, that, in that stage. And we tend to forget perhaps that the initial role of military aviation was spotting for the guns, observing where the, what the enemy were up to, um, and, uh, and so on. So that puts it really 
where we started in, into context, and, and three squadron of Australian Flying Corps on the Western Front operated the RE-8 extensively, and we have recently acquired at the museum here a, um, an RE-8 um, from TVAL, uh, the Vintage Avi- Aviator Limited in uh, <coughs> New Zealand, and uh, that's, a, that's a great thing to have here, because I think the RE-8 is one of those very underappreciated aircraft, and the airmen who flew those uh, are very underappreciated. Let's head up the stairs. Actually, just before we mm. go, um, also speaking of underappreciated, there's a section here on the women who were in the, uh, in the Air Force. The establishment of the Women's Australian Auxiliary Air Force created a precedent that also opened the way for women in both the Australian Army and Navy. The WAF was also in the forefront of measures that brought about gradual improvement in the status of all service women. The roots of their success were forged as these early air women broke the barrier of social opposition during World War II. As a civilian, you went about your daily work, all the time consciously or unconsciously, obeying certain rules and regulations laid down by the civil authorities and considered by them to be necessary for community life. You crossed the intersection when the traffic light was green, and when it changed to red, you stopped and waited. You probably queued up to get your ticket and had to be at work in time. In fact, in many ways, your civilian existence was limited by rules and regulations. When you join the Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force, your service life also is regulated by laws and customs, so necessary for the smooth working and efficiency of the Air Force. The keynote of the Air Force is efficiency and success is obtained only by each individual member being an efficient part of the whole. The degree of efficiency will depend largely on the standard of discipline. How is the high standard of discipline in the Air Force obtained? Look at these new recruits arriving by tender at a training depot. Notice their hesitating and lackadaisical manner, their incapacity to do things in an orderly fashion, the way they seem to flop about. They have no idea of doing the same thing at the same time, nor even of all turning the same way. In fact, they do not move as a coordinated whole. Compare them with these smart, alert and disciplined airwomen in this flight about to leave the depot on posting. They too were recruits a few short weeks ago. Never previously in Australia's history have so many opportunities existed for young women to train for such a wide range of interesting careers. More than 30 different types of occupation are available for young women who join the Women's Royal Australian Air Force, whose Air Chief Commandant is the Queen Mother. This is a passing out parade at Point Cook, Victoria, where all Women's Royal Australian Air Force recruits receive their initial training. These women have concluded their training and are now ready to take their places as qualified air women in the units of the Royal Australian Air Force. Working alongside the men of the Air Force, they will be part of the team that keeps our aircraft in the air. Young women joining the WAF indicate their preferences for a particular type of employment before enlisting, and subsequent training in their chosen field will make them specialists in many phases of Air Force work. Those women um, have uh, generally taken a much greater role, really from World War II when it started through to today until now. Um, it's an equal in, uh, opportunities employer, the Royal Australian Air Force, as it should be. Um, but uh, a lot of our women did amazing things. I always like to jump sideways there, though, and point out that you know we're very proud of what our women did in Australia, America, New Zealand, Britain in World War II. 
but it was really the Russian women who, who uh, led the way there. It was the, the Russian women in the Great Patriotic War who actually crewed three squadrons. And the vast majority, there were a few men in those squadrons, but the vast majority ground crew, uh, air crew, gunners, navigators, and the pilots of a medium bomber, um, a, the Night Witches famously, and a fighter of, um, of light aircraft, and the fighter squadron was, was predominantly women. And there was no compromise. They weren't backing up. They were in the front line fighting for the, to, to defend their country. Absolutely. Just as many women were in the places like Greece and... Indeed, uh, indeed. You know, France and all that as well. As we come up the stairs, uh, we're going... Uh, into that actually the mural is all around us uh, it's a world war one skyscape with a burning what's that an fe2 fe2 you're not having a good day there yeah. um, and uh, i think it's a fouts over to one side and um, we head up to the world war one gallery in the world war one gallery um it's just funny, it's walking and talking, it's, yeah, a, it's a challenge and, sometimes. And for me, also tripping on the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> World War I gallery, you have a very uh, mixed selection of artefacts and so on um, to do with the, the First World War, and, and anybody who's uh, familiar with the First World War, a lot of this will seem uh, familiar territory. We have a bit of lozenge camouflage. We have a, uh, a cutout of Charlie Chaplin, um, yeah. which was on Harry Cobby's uh, aircraft, um, and it's a, it's a tin plate that was stuck on the side. Uh, again, we have uh, prop blades, we have an Aldis sight, um, uh, those that know the oldest side is that kind of telescope you see on a lot of um, British aircraft of the First World War that the pilot sighted through. It's not a telescope, it's actually a kilometre sight. That is, it doesn't enlarge when you look through it, but it means that it, if you look through it, you're all lined up um, in the case of a sight on your target. And there's a fascinating little story to do with the oldest, which is that um, the British ones uh, were filled with an inert gas. And the Germans captured a number of them, but they never realised um, that they were actually had. They didn't have, you know, sort of standard atmosphere. And so when they used them in aircraft going up at 20 plus thousand feet, or you know, diving quickly or whatever, they could never understand why their ones were always fogging up or uh, failing to work, and the um, and the British ones were uh, were working very well. So again, the other thing is you didn't put your eye to the um, the back of the all the site. You just looked through it from a distance, like a like a you know rifle sight. Okay. Um, it's one of those things everybody knows the wrong things about. Right. And around us here we see there's a uh, propeller blade, uh, there's um, uniforms and, and uh, medals and little knickknacks and watches and various things that were collected uh, from World War One. Indeed, and like most museums, this is actually a very small selection of the material in store. We regularly get donations. Most of the stuff on show here, all of it is significant in one way or another, but a lot of it has a, a great deal of history behind it. And if you just come around this corner, Dave, um, yep, we have... Um, a couple of, we've had a couple of very historic... Oh, my word, we're about to get bombed, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, soundscape, I hope, sounds impressive, but not too distracting from our, uh, our podcast today, but it uh, does give you a real flavour and context for people. And it's interesting, most visitors don't really seem to notice it as such, but they do feel it enhances. When you talk to them about it, you go, oh, I really felt I was getting an idea of what was, uh, what was happening. So we're looking at uh, the, what's known as the Laterton flag, and it's a, it's a Union flag, Union Jack, as it's commonly known, um, which was brought back from uh, uh, AFC Laterton, um, which was uh, in the UK at the end of the First World War. And that, um, that flag was signed by most of the, uh, the young men who were there at the time. That's um, remarkable, isn't it? it it's a very important artefact, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, we'll try and post up a, a photo of that uh, when, in, onto the podcast. As well as signatures of the, uh, the young men who were there, uh, all over the white bits of the flag in the centre, there's a, a white circular panel which has got a, a drawing on it of two Aussies with a bottle in each hand, and on one side is the king's head pub and the other side is 
the Falcon pub on each side of the road and these Aussies are in the middle of the uh, of the road and obviously having a bit of a knees up. Yep, it, says in fact, it says knees up below it, uh, Armistice yeah. Day. I think that's one occasion we would definitely um, not make any, any uh, rude remarks about the guy's uh, propensity for hitting the bottle occasionally. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, that was definitely an occasion you wanted. And in the background, there's also the, uh, the, the church at Laterton. So this would have been a very important artefact to the young men, all gone now, um, who had actually managed to survive through you know, luck, skill, judgment, being in the right place, survive the, uh, the, the horrors of the First World War. Are most of the names Australians? Or I believe they're all um, uh, people associated with the base, so the majority are Australian, but there are some actual um, British uh, people who, uh, you know, again, uh, I think one of the great things we've had about travelling around is how many people um, have supported people like our, our airmen who were over there, and there was a very strong bond. There still is uh, a memorial at Leiterton and, and, um, and quite a few uh, well-tended graves from the guys who were killed in training um, there. It's a, it's well displayed. I must say that, and it's it's great to see it. I mean, you know, an original artifact like this, just incredible. Just imagine all of those men who actually held this flag while they were signing it. Yes, and they probably wouldn't ever expect it to end up in a museum. They would like it to have ended up yeah. in a museum, I'm sure, but you know, they would probably be really amazed to see what we've got here. Yeah. We'll keep moving on because there's a lot to see today, and we're just going to pick out some of the uh, highlights. We move from the First World War and we're looking at the, um, the whole Second World War experience. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit through this, although there's lots of very important things to see because yeah. a lot of this stuff we'll be covering in other ways uh, elsewhere. But for those that don't um, get to do the, the trip we're doing or see the things we're hopefully seeing, um, this is a very good grounding in some of the stuff that, uh, you know, putting the World War II in context. For Australia, and exactly like New Zealand really, um, it, was a, it was a global conflict. We had airmen all over the world, as New Zealand, as Canada, um, South Africa, Rhodesia, Britain, all of our allies in the, in the British Commonwealth and Empire, and indeed our you know, allies in, in America did. One thing that's pretty much this, uh, unique to Australia, however, is the way we ended up defending our own country. So um, Australia's been a country since um, 1901. Uh, as of when it federation um, and all the states came together at that point and we've only ever had to defend the country against a direct enemy attack once which was the attacks on northern and uh, uh, northern uh, western australia by the japanese in 19 late 1941 early 42 um, which is a bit of a worry really because we've been fighting for most of that century one way or another okay so moving on a little bit further we've got the display in um, of the Darwin attacks, and that contains some really cool. There's a wonderful guide to visit uh, visit Bachelor uh, Hotels, which is a little watercolour painting of a, uh, a tent. It's a very ironic tourism guide um, in the cabinet, uh, apparently talking about how wonderful it is to visit this, this military base and how you'd love to come and stay here um, with that military irony of um, this is an awful place to have been posted. <laughs> There's chunks, literally chunks of shrapnel and bullets um, from uh, Japanese aircraft that were shot down and, or, or damaged over, um, over Darwin. And I think it's an important point to call out, though we, if I do a quick... Um, turn around there's uh, panels on prisoners and invaders, um, uh, fighters in Europe, uh, fighting in the Mediterranean, coastal command which is a very important part where Australians had a couple of Sunderland squadrons in, in Britain operating over the Bay of Biscay and of course um, a little tip to our Canadian friends we actually have a gate lock from the gates at RCAF Trenton in Canada where so many of our young men trained. And we've got the bomber command uh, display there as well. Not forgetting the bomb command, thanks Dave, and there's a, there, uh, we've had displays on things like the dam busters and, and many other things. Yeah. 
Um, we'll be able to put uh, pictures up of most of the, the, the critical things we put about. We'll try and paint a few word pictures as well. So this is obviously a Pacific section here? Indeed, yes. That's actually a really nice display. Yes, we, we, the museum curators here um, work very hard. They're, uh, they're fully qualified as, as uh, uh, museum curators in, in the broader sort of museum sense, as well as obviously knowing their um, their aviation stuff. Um, the, one of the challenges they face, as I've touched on before, is you know what do you display, what do you leave out. And we, in a way, we're spoilt for richness, but we don't want to overload people. We want people to be able to come in and have a look um, around. And I've been saying we all the way through here. I should say at this stage that, uh, yes, it's my home museum, very important to me, um, but also um, I volunteer um, at the Royal Australian Air Field Force Museum as a guide. Um, I help out with the interactive flying displays, which we've talked about uh, with our uh, podcast with Murray, which will be broadcast uh, separately. Um, and I also occasionally one of the aircraft cleaners, which Dave was lucky enough to see the aircraft cleaning on the Sunday. We don't have dusty aircraft here. We work no. very hard to keep them clean. Everything's spotless. Um, that's uh, museum volunteers doing that. Um, and one little thing I will add, just, just add to that, that, what we're having today in this podcast is my own opinion. It's not official museum opinion. It's not the mu opinion of a volunteer um, on duty. This is me wandering through the museum uh, with Dave for our, for our podcast. Right. So um, I'm saying it as I see it. But I'm very proud of the museum, both as a visitor and um, as a volunteer. Now this is a, a lot of flags here from around the world, this is obviously uh, talking about the United Nations and um, we're uh, in fact we just walked through a little um, broadcast of a newsreel from the 1950s and above us is a is a, the United Nations flag and a good game to uh, to play with the uh, people who are uh, maybe not as quick as they want to be. I don't, if we're actually honest Dave, could you name all of those flags? I know there's a couple there I'd be hard pushed to. I could name most of them but probably not all of there's them. A, there's a couple that are a bit more challenging but yep it's the UN um, form, the UN action in in, um, in Korea in the 1950s. Uh, we've got some wonderful artefacts from there. Turning on again, another thing is uh, very um, uh, is, is a very much an Australian element is the whole Butterworth um, and overseas bases um, Ubon, Th Thailand and so on um, and uh, we have a little display here of what Air Force life was like for the RAAF overseas um, in the um, in the 50s, 60s and I think into the 70s. Right. We have a young girl who uh, would be the daughter of a um, uh, mannequin, young girl. She's kind of spookily real, isn't she, Dave? Yes, yes. Uh, just sitting in front of us here reading her school book. And uh, even more scary is we have one of the scariest looking nurses, uh, mannequins I've ever seen approaching with, uh, oh, just a stethoscope, that's okay. That, 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 that nurse um, looks like she came from King's Cross, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit, she, she looks kind of manly. A <laughs> bit, bit worrying there, yes. Um, but uh, it does show the, you know, the variety, not just the nurses, of course, but the whole, um, the whole of the life there. Yeah. We also have something that the big thing again which distinguishes to some degree Australia from the other Commonwealth countries, New Zealand is included here, is, is our involvement in Vietnam. Um, and that's probably the thing I found most startling and, and confronting really, returning to Australia as an adult um, 10 years ago, is seeing cars driving along with Vietnam veteran bumper stickers and the effect that we still see rumbling down today with, uh, with these guys who are my dad's age, um, who, uh, who went off to serve uh, in Vietnam in what was a particularly messy and unpleasant war. Not that wars aren't always unpleasant, but uh, this was uh, in, a, in a league of its own. And moving on again, Dave, we have uh, a little, um, again, a mixed newsreel. They use, the, the guys at the museum here use film and newsreel and, and recreated stuff very well, talking about the incredible 
incredible uh, fight between um, uh, Australians about whether we should be in Vietnam and on what basis and how, and um, it, it was a very uh, destructive period. Yeah. Jumping backwards, another destructive period different to the rest of the Commonwealth is a big fight in the First War about whether Australians should be conscripted or not, and um, that, that rumbled on. There was, uh, I think, if I remember my history rightly, a couple of um, uh, plebsits about that, and um, it caused huge ructions in, in um, Australian politics and civil life, as well as all the damage by, by the wars that we had there. Right. Skipping past the, going past this display, which you may have just heard a little bit in the background, on Vietnam, very, very popular um, uh, video we have. We have a little um, section of, of uh, Hercules. Yep. Uh, Hercules definitely needs no introduction, doesn't it? Every, right. Everybody's got Hercs. Every Air Force on either side of the... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, a great, what a great aeroplane. And we actually have three Hercs here uh, complete, but this little segment here so people can sit in that great webbing seat. Um, any ex-Air Force guys are probably having flashbacks about their Herc rides now. Um, and uh, we have an A-model Hercules, uh, an E-model Hercules, and an H-model Hercules on show. Another link to Trenton in Canada, the Canadians, that's their, that's their Herc base. So it's great to see the CC-130, as they call it, whereas to us it's, it's the Herc, always the Herc. Yeah. That's right, it's the Herc, Herc where we come from as well. Yeah, yeah. and what a great aeroplane. What a, the more I've learned about Hercs and Hercs crews, the more impressed I've been. And we actually have here in Victoria um, just arrived, I think, um, a, a firefighting Hercules from Coulson Aviation in Canada. And there's another Coulson Hercules in New South Wales for our upcoming summer fire season. So the Herc has a lot more roles um, than you might you might think. Yeah, uh, our... Um our RNZF Hercules uh, fleet of five have uh, recently all turned 50 years old and wow. they're, um, they're, they've been the backbone of the Air Force for 50 years, half a century, which is just amazing. And, uh, you know, you, you say you've got three models of Hercules here. They've each replaced the, the last and, yep. um, you know, we, ours have kept on going. They've been upgraded and ours have yep. now got the glass cockpits and... Uh, they reckon they'll go for another 20 odd years probably. And, and that, I think we should also give a tip of the hat to the guys. They often get rude remarks made by to, towards uh, the uh, the transport side by other bits of the Air Force, the fighter boys and the bomber boys or the fighter bomber boys. I think that's really unfair because the Hurt guys, they go into scary places all the time. They're generally always working. They do yep. a lot of training, but they don't spend a lot of time like the fighter guys training, 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 and then the occasional uh, deployment for, for a real hot war, which obviously none of us want. Um, Hercules are called in all sorts of ways. And in Australia, Probably one of those highlights was um, uh, that Cyclone Tracy, our A-model Hercules, went into uh, Darwin after Cyclone Tracy on uh, Christmas 1974, one of the first aeroplanes in there to, uh, to uh, help with the evacuation and bringing in emergency supplies. Yeah, well, uh, a good New Zealand angle on that is the Royal Australian Air Force Hercules fleet uh, came to the rescue in Christchurch as well just after the big earthquakes in 2011. That's and, true, yes. You know, we, we had Hercules from around the world, but the Australians were some of the first in along with ours, yeah. and um, they did a lot of hard work there. I think it's a good point to pick up. One of the things we keep coming back to on this uh, trip is the close cooperation with uh, between New Zealand and Australia. It's not ANZAC as a formal organisation anymore, but the ANZAC spirit, as the cliche has it, it certainly lives on, and uh, uh, I'm proud of, of the connections we've had with, uh, with New Zealand, mutual support, because the Kiwis have always come in when we've needed them too. Those would have probably been the current uh, C-130Js and maybe some of the last Hs in service that we had. But um, yeah, great, great aeroplane. Looking a little further on, we can see some of the Antarctic uh, material we have here. Yep. And uh, again, okay. a, a fascinating. And for Australians, this is exciting because uh, we don't get this cold usually. <laughs> no, that's true. 
um, again another tie-in with the Kiwis because uh, Indeed. Yeah, we all also operate down in the Antarctic and I, I can see a nice beaver on floats we, yep. had, we had a beaver down there but ours didn't have the floats oh okay that's yeah. that's an interesting difference and there was of course Banzari at one stage which was a British uh, Antarctic Australia and New Zealand expedition but we've often uh, either been doing the same thing or actually working together between Britain Australia New Zealand particularly um, in, in Antarctica Australia's got territory down there uh, we claim Australia claims territory in, in Antarctica but it's in abeyance like all the other Antarctic claims it's yeah. great when you see the map because they all overlap each other and if, it, if they ever became uh, serious claims it could all get very interesting very quickly well I, I actually personally think that once all that ice has melted off there we're going to have a lot of extra land to sell to people <laughs> <laughs> we may well, a great investment. We may well. <laughs> so we're just going to keep going a little bit further on here and we will be moving into the top of one of the uh, Bellman hangars here you should hear the doors going And we're now moving into the training hangar. We'll just uh, head out to a little platform that we uh, is, is nice and in the middle. Um, and you get a great view, I think, Dave, up here for some of the aircraft we have on show. Yeah, and the first one in front of us is a, a good old favourite and, and one that we've come across a few times in this tour so far, and that's the uh, CD4 air trainer from New Zealand Aerospace or um, these days Pacific Aerospace. This is a CD4A, um, one of the earliest... Uh, batches, well the, the earliest batch, Yep. and uh, in its original plastic parrot scheme. Indeed, for those not familiar, um, the CT4 as we've been discussing in this series is uh, was nicknamed here the plastic parrot by, by the Air Force, um, as the uh, current uh, uh, museum OPSO, operations officer says, um, as he remembers the story was he was there, was that it got nicknamed the plastic parrot because of this uh, green and gold colour scheme and uh, the Air Force did not like this so there was a very clear instruction that you will not call it the plastic parrot which is the best way of reinforcing a nickname that anybody knows yep. and um, now our parrot when we um, flies for the museum as part of the interactives or our displays is heritage parrot is the call sign so that's a really good nickname, nickname to stick to. Well that's fantastic and of course ours in New Zealand um, originally for the first I don't know 20 years or so of their, their career um, we're in the uh, the grey and red, or grey and international orange, but it looked red yep. scheme. And um, because they were grey, we called ours the plastic rats. Yeah, I think I'd much prefer the nickname parrot, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we had the wrong colour scheme. We've got them in, well, I guess they, they recently retired, but we had them in the, the yellow and black, which is very similar to the scheme. In fact, it is, yes. In, in this low light, it actually looks like yellow and black. It does. You, know, you have to look closely to see that it's actually green, but out in the sunshine, it would be... A nice green colour. Indeed, and interestingly you mentioned it being in its original scheme. A good point to pick up here about good museum practice. This aircraft was painted back to the delivery scheme because all the parrots um, in their latter career were in the later uh, scheme, not this one. So this is actually one of only a couple uh, CT4s in the original RAAF scheme. Um, there's another one which we'll be seeing at tomorrow. Matt Dennings is in the, um, the original scheme and it really stands out against the modern scheme which most of them are in. Okay, so the other two that we've seen so far um, were in what they call the Fantacan That's right. uh, scheme. Uh, just like down here we've got the Mackie. Yep, um, this Mackie's uh, one of my favourites. This, uh, so we, we licensed produce the uh, the Mackie Air uh, Trainer here in um, in Australia, but this one is one of the, this is the first one, 01, 01, um, and that was built in, in Italy, so it likes its uh, it likes its cappuccino and it speaks Italian. Right. Um, and that's one of the great things I've, I find when we're um, exploring the museum is the international connections. Um, Australia has a very strong connection to North American aviation through um, CAC licensed production, but the Mackie is another story, and then of course the Mirage from France too. Yep. Um, but yeah, just going back a moment to the, the parrot scheme, 
we're very lucky as, as an Air Force Museum that when an aircraft's retired now, it, uh, one example, or carefully chosen example, is delivered to the museum, and that will always be delivered in its original um, final scheme. Yep. Um, and we keep that final scheme, so it's actually the, the actual scheme the aircraft was in as far as possible. Older aircraft, or like the, the CT4 where we have several, um, we, uh, we might ring the changes a bit at the museum, but um, uh, that kind of thing about keeping the original data is very important, as we will see later. Yeah. Now we're looking down here also on a, a tiger moth, which is very common around the Commonwealth. And Indeed. So we don't really need to talk about that, but just beyond that there's a very interesting looking World War One aircraft. There is, um, Morris Farman Shorthorn, known as a shorthorn because it has shorter horns than the long horn, which tells you more than you need to know about military humour, I think. Um, yep, so it's, uh, to describe it, it's a pair of wings with a little nacelle and an engine at the back, um, uh, propped up almost midway between those, those, uh, that biplane uh, wing arrangement. A whole bundle of sticks all over the place for, for um, skids, uh, the too short to be horns, four wheels, uh, tail, skid at the, tail skids at the back, um, and um, a, a tailplane arrangement held off by all of these sticks. And twin booms. Twin booms, absolutely, yeah. Um, so this was a restoration. In fact, um, a lot of the work on this was done by um, uh, uh, Group Captain um, Ron Gretton, uh, retired, um, and that was one of the first uh, aircraft that he worked on here at the museum as a, as a major, major rebuild. Um, a Mackie we've mentioned, and just a quick sort of flick round what we're looking at. We have a, um, a Vampire down below, Avro 504, and the wind gel. We'll just head down this ramp in front of us, Dave, and yep. um, and pick up down there. Yep. Just going to say, as we're walking down, the uh, the vampire and the Everett 504K are, are quite uh, commonly seen in places like New Zealand and and um, England and indeed Canada uh, as well. Yeah. And, but uh, the wind gel is a bit different. It's um, we've I think perhaps there are two in New Zealand, um, but it's uh, another of those locally produced aircraft. Yeah, they're, uh, they're kind of uh, very common on airfields in Australia, uh, almost it seems, but outside of Australia there are very few. I think, in fact, there was one in America for a while which is back in Australia, Airworthy, um, and otherwise, other than the New Zealand ones, I don't think you'll ever see one um, uh, overseas. Right. We've just got lot, we're just walking past a whole sort of ramp load of display cabinets and so on and so forth, but I'd just like to bring Dave's attention here to a couple of little bits here and we have um, uh, trade training it's called it's a little cabinet we have some bits of metal where trade uh, trainees will be learning how to do their um, their, their uh, skills crafts and so on and there's a little metal panel here and uh, one day I was just wandering around and looking and I could see here it had um, uh, tapped into the to the steel um, the name of the of the, um, the cadet who uh, who did that piece of metal and in the name is Gretton Ah, so that would be our Ron again. Ron again, yeah. um, and I think it's personally I really love having a connection with a gentleman I can call a friend, um, who you know has, has donated an item to the museum from his very early days when he was a, uh, well, the, his course they, they were known as the Wombats. Each course had a nickname, so he has wombat gatherings every so often with the guys still around. We're having a quick look ahead of us at uh, a link trainer, but we're just going to move on through the tr the, um, the training hangar um, to the techni technical hangar. Yep. As we're walking through, I just want to say it's a really nicely laid out uh, display here. The, the aircraft are all well lit. Um, I think very carefully cleaned. Yes, very very clean, very shiny. And uh, between the hangars, there's a, a little section where we've got uh, 
the marine uh, section of the Air Force um, indeed, we, represented. We, we like to tell any um, Royal Australian Navy or indeed any other Navy people we have visit that the Royal Australian Air Force had more uh, more sea craft than the Royal Australian Navy during World War II. As are all Littleys, they had some quite big ones, yeah. um, but we had a lot of marine presence with flying boats, uh, seaplanes, and also bases like here. Point Cook is actually on the bay, uh, Port Phillip Bay, um, and we operated and trained for marine aircraft here uh, through the history of the base. I uh, don't have any, any marine operations at the moment, tragically. That would be really cool if we could get another seaplane into action. Yeah, it would. And of course, they also use these boats for air sea rescue in some places. Indeed, yes. And we're just walking through into the next hangar. And, uh, you know, looking around, there's some quite stunning aircraft. On my left, there's the, the Walrus. Uh, in front of me, just up to the, uh, up in the, hanging in the ceiling, there's the uh, Iroquois, which looks to be a B model, is it? Uh, well, everybody loves to call them the uh, the Bell Huey, but we're, we're very carefully told to call it the Iroquois. So yeah. for those um, not familiar with the, the name Iroquois, that's the helicopter in those films that makes the noise. In fact, filmmakers love the noise of the, the, uh, the Iroquois or Huey so much that pretty much every helicopter gets to make that bell um, uh, rotor sound, whether or not it's a bell-type helicopter or not. As we called it in the Royal New Zealand Air Force, the waka-waka sound. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Um, however, good to talk about this one for a moment. Um, for um, many people will know, most Australians I think will know, one of the, the tough battles of uh, the Vietnam War for Australia was the Battle of Long Tan, um, when the army saw off a, a significantly overwhelming attack. One element of that at uh, was a, a flight in by two uh, Bell helicopters by the Royal Australian Air Force to give them an ammunition resupply and this is one of those two helicopters so okay. um, it's a very historic machine um, you know if, if we had to preserve one Bell Iroquois that would be it uh, the other one is actually um, outside an RSL um, uh, and there's quite a few of them around and, and um, they know what they've got but uh, we're very pleased to have this one here as well so would this have flown with number nine squadron indeed it would have yes so um, quite quite likely that uh, some of the, our Kiwi pilots who were in Vietnam would have flown this aircraft because they were attached from 3 Squadron Royal New Zealand Air Force to Number 9 Squadron Royal Australian Air Force. Absolutely, very, very likely. We didn't deploy that. And again, um, like New Zealand, Australian numbers uh, of aircraft and personnel in Vietnam were relatively small compared to the massive effort by the United States. Yeah. Um, but yes, indeed, and, and in exactly the same way, a lot of air, airmen uh, flew uh, on exchange with the, the United States Air Force, United States Marines, United States Navy as well. So uh, it's actually a, a historian's nightmare keeping tabs on these yeah. guys. Um, but uh, you know there were some pretty amazing experiences um, by by our airmen and indeed all the others. And let's not forget the guys on the ground. Vietnam was a nasty nasty war, and um, it was a very very asymmetric war. And there were guys you know defending their own territory, firing back um, at, at our guys. Not a good thing at all. Although I will add, there's no war that's not a nasty war. So. Uh, indeed, yes. Yeah, we're not, we're no just, such thing as a good war, except one that doesn't happen. Yeah. The, the places like this are not here to glorify war. They're, they're here to remember those who served and to remember the tech technology um, remember the people but not to glorify the actual wars. So. It's a good, good, I'm glad you made the point that way Dave. I think one of the problems we have is that some people see that that way. Yeah. We have some confronting stuff here. We've, we've had people who've been really really upset coming into the museum um, and, uh, and confronted with a part, bit of their past. Um, I won't go into details but um, um, sometimes it can it can be really quite uh, tough and distressing. Sometimes it's cathartic. Sometimes people get a chance to come back and, and finish off a story or a situation that they never had the chance to do before. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's, it's a tricky thing. And I think also uh, when I'm being critical about military museums, there is a danger that it's 
it's easier to present the safe version of the story and rather than looking at some of the hard stuff and here for instance we have a good display of training training's not too confrontational but it should be because we lose a lot of people in military training in both World War One and World War Two. The casualty rates were appalling, yeah. nearly as bad, sometimes worse than actual combat. Yes. Um, nowadays in training in, in the military, it's not nearly as, as uh, dangerous and we do still occasionally lose uh, some people in accidents and so on, but they've worked very hard to, to eliminate those. Now, we're talking about the operational side and, and looking around us, there's some very interesting um, operational aircraft here. And you know, to our right, we've got the Douglas Boston, which uh, the other night we were talking with uh, Ian Whitney about how he was in the team that got these things out of um, uh, Papua New Guinea. Was it he got That's right. I think out? to be uh, now, I, I may be wrong as well, Dave, but I think if I remember rightly, what happened was Ian Ian identified a several locations for A20s and Bostons, same aircraft, depending on which uh, nation you're coming from, America or. Uh, Commonwealth and um, uh, identified their locations in Papua New Guinea and then the Royal Australian Air Force put together a program with, with a lot of local help and expert help from various people um, and retrieved I think something in the order of eight airframes, two of which were restored this one here, Jessica as it's known because uh, the aircraft letter is J in squadron um, and another one known as Hell and Pelican which is uh, Upper Amberley uh, RAAF Amberley in Queensland which is where um, these two aircraft were restored when we had aircraft being restored by other um, air force Force uh, bases and, and, and uh, tech teams. Sadly, that's not occurring so much now, but it has meant we've had this magnificent Boston, uh, one of two aircraft that are particularly close to my heart in the museum, <clears throat> partly because um, my, uh, my wife's uh, um, great-uncle flew Boston's <clears throat> but in his case he was in the RCAF um, but he was flying with the, the RAF so we're coming back to that small Commonwealth world again Dave. Well again yeah and there were a number of New Zealanders who flew these aircraft as well and I've, I've interviewed a couple of them previously on the Wings Over New Zealand show and you can go back and hear their stories uh, you know um, in other previous podcasts. Previous yeah. Podcasts, yeah. There's a couple of wonderful things. So Jessica was bellied into Kunai grass in, in Papua New Guinea and the crew, I believe, walked out, but they left a lot of stuff behind and there was a thermos flask just behind the pilot's seat in this aircraft, which um, uh, still had coffee in. I don't think they tested it very seriously, but uh, there was coffee in the thermos. Wow. And the thermos is, is still now warm? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there was that good a thermos. Uh, this was, I think, in the nine, early 80s, the recovery, yeah. so a good 40 years later. Um, and uh, the, as I say, the aircraft was immaculately restored. Not a lot of Bostons around. There's, uh, we were no. just totting up with Ian when we were chatting. Um, there's, uh, there's one in Brazil, in the Brazilian Air Force, another one in the United States Air Force Museum. Um, and we're very lucky that an A-20 has just flown um, for one of the American collectors out of, uh, based uh, and restored at Chino in California. And it's great to see that different shape in the sky. Mitchell's great, okay. but there, there's a lot of Mitchells around and it doesn't show the diversity. And well, for my money, the Bostons are much much nicer uh, needle looking aeroplane it is and it's one of those forgotten heroes and, Indeed. and, and in terms of technology it was uh, quite a leap forward and, and you know the medium bombers uh, having the tricycle undercarriage and um, really big uh, gutsy engines that could get get it to and from the target uh, fast as a mark 5 spitfire at low level and interdiction in europe we yeah. we um, took out the navigator in the nose of these ones which uh, uh, we got second hand and that's another story um, and uh, added to the four 303 caliber machine guns on the sides of the nose we put in 4.50s in so they could come into the uh, to a harbor say in papua new guinea or whatever literally all guns blazing and um, and uh, suppress return fire and so on 
But I just mentioned there is a bit of a story behind um, <clears throat> the acquisition of these aircraft. Very simplified, so excuse me for the, uh, the, the serious historians here and please don't quote me too much, but basically the uh, Bostons were originally ordered by the French, but um, the Germans arrived before the aircraft did, so uh, the French order was never fulfilled. Um, uh, the, the Dutch decided that they would be an excellent aircraft for, for use in the Pacific and they ordered some. Um, the Dutch aircraft arrived in Australia uh, and the Japanese were approaching, so the Royal Australian Air Force took them over. And um, I've had a couple of Dutch people at me very sore that we stole their lovely Bostons and we gave them B-25s instead, which I think is an indication of some preferences there that uh, the, uh, the Boston was preferred by the Dutch. And there's some of them a little bit, still a little bit sore about it, but we do understand that. Um, but yeah, by the time we got them and they were new out of the crate, they were technically third-hand aeroplanes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Um, just for listeners too, you can hear a bit of noise in the background. We're actually in a Bellman hangar. That's right. Yep. Yeah, we and should say a little bit about the Bellman yeah. hangar. But go on, Dave. Yeah, well, just the, uh, the, the that's a rattling noise on the roof as the uh, wind buffets the hangar and and the, the metal on the on the roof uh, heats up and cools down with the sun going in and, in and out of the, behind the clouds. Indeed, so it's it, a it's a standard sound that you'll hear in an aircraft hangar. Uh, so it's not good for recording a podcast, but uh, you're getting that whole Air Force experience. And you might just hear a bit of rumble in the background. This is still an active uh, active airfield. The majority of what's going on here is uh, training for Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, RMIT, um, who, uh, who do um, light aircraft training for future airline pilots for the most part. So you can go and do a course there and, and learn to become an airline pilot. Um, we also have um, occasional uh, military operations here. It's sometimes used as a base for Melbourne. Um, for instance, we had um, some helicopters based here during the um, Commonwealth Games uh, and so on. And um, we also have the um, museum's own operations as well, which is how we keep the military heritage alive here. And that's how we get our 100 years. Is it's actually historic aircraft operated by the Australian Defence Force as part of the, um, with, with the museum as part of that. Um, but the Billman hangar... Um, one of those things you just don't really notice, but uh, fascinating. You can, you can knock it down into two metre or about six foot sections, demount it, uh, whack it onto a bunch of trucks, move it around, uh, you know, put it to a different location, reassemble it, and off you go. Um, pretty cranky things, um, hot in summer, cold in winter, noisy as Dave's just said, um, but a standard site across uh, Australia for um, uh, Air Force bases. Um, and of, of course the ultimate irony here is that these Bellmans were put up as um, temporary buildings for the duration only in World War II, so we're yeah. getting excellent, excellent value absolutely, out of them. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, there's a couple of aircraft here that are probably close to your heart, James, because you love the World War One stuff as well. Yes. And uh, we've got an SE-5 and a BE-2. Now, they're uh, one of the... Yeah, indeed, Dave. One of the fascinating things about the mix we have here is you have everything from the, the Bell Iroquois, which is the aircraft that did the long tan resupply, that one that we're looking at, to aircraft like these, and these are what you might call uh, ringers. They're not quite what they seem. So the SE-5 is a, a modern replica built by AJD Engineering in the United Kingdom as a part of an exchange deal. Um, and uh, I've seen real SE-5s. I've seen those excellent T-Val replicas, uh, both flying and close up in the, on the ground. And this is in, the, in that bracket. You can't tell it's not a real one yeah. um, unless you absolutely know. Um, there is a genuine one, which we will be seeing at the Australian War Memorial on show there. Um, but this one was uh, uh, built to fill in the gap about the 1920s established Royal Air Force. Um, I was going to note um, it's not in the usual green colour that we see the normal olive uh, 
colour scheme, it's actually in a silver colour scheme. Indeed. And that, that's uh, between the walls. That's right. And it was one of the first, uh, what we call the um, Imperial Gift Aircraft. So the uh, the British, uh, at the, about 1920, 1919, gave each of the main Commonwealth countries a gift of aircraft yep. to establish an air force. And we must remember in, in that period they'd, they'd just fought the war to end all wars and they, and I wish they had been right, uh, believed that it was. So it was a bit of an odd thing to be setting up an air force. For those that may not be familiar outside Australia, I think most Australians, I hope most Australians know, we certainly tell enough of them here, um, we had the Australian Flying Corps in, in the First World War which worked as uh, normally under um, British command uh, in, in relatively small numbers but were in independently um, constituted squadrons and Australian and British historians fight all the time because we give ours Australian numbers and the Brits give them the British numbers so it's one squadron AFC to us and I don't know they call it a 87 squadron AFC and we go no 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 it's one squadron and right, it doesn't right. go well um, but uh, we didn't 1919 everyone was very thoroughly sick of the whole thing quite rightly um, and everything was effectively wound up although there was a little cadre of things going on here which is how we managed to have that continuous heritage then the um, uh, there was an um, now I can't remember the exact title but something like the Australian Air Corps was established they did that didn't last long it was really a paperwork exercise although there were people who uh, served there and then we had the Australian Air Force uh, established in 1921 and a few months later uh, Royal Assent was given and it became the Royal Australian Air Force and we like to claim um, to be one of the oldest air forces around pretty close behind the Royal Air Force who uh, formed in 1918 who so claimed was, first dibs. That was 1921? That was 1921 that the Royal Australian Air Force and was two, formed. Two years later we uh, in New Zealand established the New Zealand Permanent Air Force which later got the Royal Ascent in uh, 1934 and became the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Yep, yep. And, uh, Different dates, the same pattern. Exactly. Yeah, we were just As usual back in those days, we were a little bit behind the rest of the world because we were a lot smaller, we had a lot less money going on and so we'd follow what everyone else was doing. But and you were tucked away too. I mean, the, the direct threat to, to New Zealand has always been um, somewhat difficult to, to realistically see uh, in many ways, although it does obviously exist. Australia, again, we just didn't feel that there was anybody who was going to be a, a big threat at that point. We just finished fighting in Russia, by the way. We mustn't yeah. forget that. We had a um, significant number of Australians fighting with the White Russians against the Bolsheviks. Um, we seem to be always involved in a war somewhere. Um, and, and just to pick up what you said there, Dave, about New Zealand, um, when I was in Trenton in Canada at their, uh, their base, which is one of their origin uh, locations, their placard said, we saw, roughly speaking, we saw what the Australians were doing and we wanted to have an air force of our own so they actually say they copied Australia to get the uh, what became the Royal Canadian Air Force right. set up and um, that went all the way to 1945 I think that's a really important point to pick up whereas in 1945 the RAAF claimed to be um, the fourth largest air force in the world yeah. that's pretty impressive you've got to be careful with those numbers though because the Russians had some pretty big numbers but they were divided into air forces for instance right. um, the Axis weren't doing so well by the uh, mid to late 1945 they were uh, they were basically knocked out um, and the Canadians have a legitimate claim to also being the fourth largest air force in the world and I think from some research I've seen done by Australian historians and Canadian historians it's a big question of what you count ours was probably in um, 
actual aircraft numbers, whereas the Canadians would have probably been in personnel, yeah. um, because the Canadians were operating a lot more four-engine heavies than we were. We were operated, operated a fair number. We had a lot more fighters and, and co-op types as well. And we shouldn't um, forget too, the Canadians operated a lot more training units than most of the other air forces. Many, many Australians and New Zealanders had uh, their first overseas experience, and sadly in many cases their last, going to Canada for the British Air Commonwealth Training Plan or the Empire Air Training Scheme as it's variously known. Yeah. And yeah, one of the great things about visiting Canada is that even today there's a strong even stronger than the Commonwealth itself, but a strong connection between uh, Canadians and Australians and New Zealanders because there's, those guys are still remembered. Absolutely. Now, so each, each side of these World War One aircraft, we've got some jets. Yeah, before we move on to those jets, I'd just like to talk a little bit about a very special aeroplane, uh, to me indirectly, um, but uh, we have a Royal Aircraft Factory BE-2A here. Um, those New Zealand listeners familiar with the T-Val machines will be very familiar with this. The difference is this one was essentially built as a modern replica by one guy. Wow. Um, and uh, he had no real aircraft building experience and I have to say even today it blows me away what he did. This is Andrew Willocks. Um, Andrew um, helped, uh, was a key player of the four of us who when we wrote the uh, and published the Box Kite book with Jeff Matthews and Ron Gretton. Um, Andrew was the designer, that's his, that's his job, he's a, he's a, a designer um, and he learnt from, from uh, Jeff and, and Ron and many other people how to build basically a whole aeroplane. There's some great little stories in there. My favourite one is that, that Andrew went off and did a basket weaving course so he could weave the seats for this aircraft. It has basket weave seats. Wow. And I tip my hat at the guy. It cost him a lot emotionally and, and personally and financially. Um, but the end result is that he was able to complete the three types on show that we had at Point Cook in the very first uh, group. There's a Bristol box kite, the Depredessian uh, monoplane, uh, Shuttleworth has a flying one of those. Uh, we have a static replica built by uh, Jack Gillies uh, and donated to the museum, and this BE2, which uh, again is one of those underappreciated and more important aircraft. He's done a remarkable job of it, uh, and it's actually really interesting seeing this A model because. Yeah, over in New Zealand we've got uh, a C model and, and an F, F model I think, flying, yes. and that they've also got a couple of E models in the collection there in England at the moment. Yep. But you can see a lot of development between those models, um, and this early, well this is pre-war A model, isn't it? It is, and you can see, well, it would have been pre-war, it was just pre-war, it, it, it was really brought into action just after the 1st of March with the first flight here in 1914, just before the war kicked off, but it very much pre-war configuration and brought over from the UK. It has wing warping rather than ailerons. Um, what Dave and I are looking at is that it's got a four-blade wooden propeller, beautiful piece of craftsmanship there. The skids underneath it, um, wheels with on bungee with a tail skid, um, and bamboo um, uh, skids underneath the two um, lower of uh, the biplane wings. And it's also in uh, bare linen, um, yeah. so it's got that translucent look about it. No markings at all. I was going to say, there's no roundels, so I guess Nothing. they didn't really need them at point. No, if you saw it, you knew it was the BE2. Yeah, <laughs> we had yeah. a couple, but uh, generally that was... And, and going back, uh, we were very lucky to have a, a great chat with Murray Wallace about his CT4, which flew from point Cook, where we are today, to Darwin in 1979 to commemorate the first flight of one of these BE-2As in 1919 from here, Point Cook, where we are, to Darwin back then. And Dave and I, and I can't speak for Dave, but I think he'll agree, you look at that and you think about flying to Darwin, 
yeah, pretty I, amazing. I, I don't even think I could fly to your house. <laughs> yeah, we're just a, about an hour's drive, uh, and I suspect not sure, much short of an hour's flight in BE2. This is not an airworthy replica. The uh, the engine is not a not a, a, a real engine, although um, we'd love to have one. Um, so you know, again, the, the T-Val guys have done great things in making an airworthy replica, but you can't tell. And and I, you know, it's a cliche, but I think it's true that um, this could have been made to fly in the right circumstances with obviously a, an engine. What a great contrast too. Behind it is the Mirage, which is what a 1960s era. It is jet. our sexy French lady, yes. So um, there's only 50 years between the two. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, yeah, yeah really. You know, and these were the frontline combat aircraft of their day. Uh, Mirage was uh, chosen uh, by Australia. It was a big switch. It was the first time we'd really had a major uh, order and then uh, licensed production of a French aeroplane as opposed to an American or, um, uh, or British. British type, absolutely. And later, of course, we, we had them, I think later, I might be. I don't actually know whether the, the Mackie came in before or after the Mirage, but obviously Italian. Um, but yeah, um, it's a beautiful aeroplane. Everyone who's flown the Mirage just loves it. It's a, we've, uh, one of my other hats, we've published a book on Australian Mirage schemes, which is fascinating, illustrated by the great uh, Juanita Franzi, um, with all of those schemes. And um, yeah, um, well, it's a Mirage. It's, you've got to love it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it just looks like a dart. It, it looks yeah. fast. Just it, it, it's on the, the classic paper aeroplane shape, isn't it? Um, I've never seen an Australian one fly. The guys that would, the guys who'd love to get one flying, and they're going to need those cubic dollars for that. Um, I think the uh, Pakistan Air Force still operates some of our ex-Australian ones, um, but very few Mirages active around the world. I, I can't honestly say there are many I know of. So, were they straight fighters, or were they fighter bombers, or? Uh, essentially fighters, uh, we always added a bomber role when the government got tight about money, you know. Right, um, right. But essentially it's an air superiority fighter, very good in a straight line. Um, of course, being a Delta, um, you could do some pretty good turning fighting with skills, but uh, you were really depending on the skill of the pilot rather than the, um, the design of the aircraft. This was designed to go fast, get there, knock something down and get back. So they were not only defending Australia through the 1960s, but they went up to Butterworth and, and Malaysia. And yep. were they actually active over the Vietnam conflict? No, we didn't have ours, although interestingly to take that point, one of the aircraft we don't have on show in these hangars but we have elsewhere is the, um, the Sabre. Um, yep. The Australian built Sabre which we touched on a little earlier, very important type, but one of the things the Sabre did which I didn't realise is that we had um, CAC built Sabres with 20mm cannons and sidewinders sitting on the edge of the Vietnam War, um, uh, basically in containment. And um, uh, the American airmen coming out of the, uh, the actual Vietnam War, in their, primarily in their F-4 Phantoms, were uh, instructed by their commanding officer that they would be bounced by our Sabre. So we had guys coming out of actually actual combat in aircraft in their, in their, um, in their flight. And, and, and they were doing the kind of Top Gun thing with the, yeah. with the uh, we'll attack you and, and, and yeah. see, see how you react. And but they were doing it against guys who had real ammunition in their guns, had probably just fired them and may not have set the gun buttons to safe. Our guys um, would have had ammunition but not been firing it recently. So uh, very actually, if you, difference. if you listen back to uh, Noel Cruz's uh, episodes, he actually was one of those pilots doing that mm. and was right there at the beginning. And uh, um, yeah, Pretty amazing episode. It, yeah, it's great. We've moved on here to look at uh, another one of my favourites. Oh, I have so many favourites, yeah. Dave, I'm sorry. But one of, one of my favourite aircraft, um, the, uh, we have the um, de Havilland 
uh, vampire, uh, Australian built example again here. Um, this one's very special and uh, my favourite for a number of reasons. Um, it's a composite airframe uh, built up from several different aircraft and they chose to put it into a startling scheme. Uh, what, what can you see Dave? Well it's, uh, it's got silver booms and tail but it's got uh, black and white bumblebee type, type uh, uh, arrangement of scheme on the front uh, of the, well, the, basically the whole fuselage and, and the wings and uh, obviously that says to me that it's for target towing. Indeed, those uh, black and white stripes that make it stand out nicely as a target tug. We had two of these aircraft painted in these schemes, so they're, they're meant to be straight stripes, and one of the challenges the museum curatorial staff had to overcome was to figure out how to wrap straight stripes around basically an egg shape for the nacelle, <coughs> excuse me, and, um, and then run it out across the wings. And if you know where to look, there's a bit where the straight stripes are not straight at all. Ah, right. But to the eye it looks like. <coughs> it, it does indeed. And um, uh, the other thing, for those not familiar with the Australian um, uh, vampire um, and some other vampires in other services are similar, this was a very early design, one of the first British um, uh, jet designs. Um, it has a, a jet in the back of the pod. The front of the pod is a wooden monocoque construction, exactly the same design structure as the Mosquito and covered in fabric, uh, modapolum, um, fabric on top, and then painted. So if you know what you're looking for, you can see that, and it's got that, that wooden structure. However, it's also pressurised with an ejection seat. So you actually have a capsule made of wood, which you've pressurised, and you put an explosive device inside, and you put a jet engine behind. Those British engineers, they're just brilliant, aren't they? <laughs> and the pilots were bloody brave. <laughs> That's right. Well, the Vampire, another very popular, regarded as a sports car by most of the guys who got to fly it. And if you see the pilot's position, very low, not a lot in front of you. You've got the 20mm cannon, four of them underneath you. Um, are pretty amazing. What we also have here to go with this is a modern uh, target drogue um, that of the type of thing the Vampire would have been towing. We've got that hung from the roof here, and, and we can see, I believe it's made of Kevlar uh, weave, oh. and... Um, um, I could be wrong, um, and uh, feel free to write in and say, no, no, they're always so-and-so, but I understand Kevlar. Um, and you can see this one looks like it's been a very bad moth attack, which is, um, uh, I believe, 20mm rounds uh, going through it. It's really interesting that you point that out, because when I saw it, I just assumed it was the pilot's badminton net, you know, <laughs> like a top gun. You know? It looks very much <laughs> like, a, like a net. Yeah, exactly. What a good way of describing it, David. This one has a big black dot in the middle, and I always like to tell the kiddies that uh, this is a... Uh, uh, it was very carefully chosen by one of our fighter squadrons to show the people of Australia how good they are at shooting and we have three rounds in that bullseye. Uh, it's pretty shredded otherwise. Famously they used to uh, dip the, the, um, the shells or bullets in paint and the, the remnants of paint on the, on the drogue would show who had, um, who had scored the highest number and was therefore buying the drinks and having to be able to relax in, the, uh, in their logbook record. Um, the other thing is I did a lot of research on target tugs, another very forgotten area of aviation history. One, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the forgotten bits. I never managed to track down anybody actually shot down towing a target, but an awful lot of people had some nasty surprises. It's very easy to do a beam attack on a drogue, and you're not doing well, and you just keep creeping in on a curving attack behind until you're shooting up the, the, um, the wire at the guy at the front who probably says a few sharp words over the radio. Well, uh, I have actually met a guy who was flying Wildebeest, and oh, I'm not sure if it's a Wildebeest or Vincent, same thing anyway, uh, as a target tug with the Kitty Hawks. And, uh, did he get shot down? He, he didn't get shot down, but his aircraft did get hit a few times. And yes. there's, there's one bullet that must have travelled through the aircraft, past his head and through the prop. Whoa. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was an awful lot of close calls. Mm. In training, wasn't always that safe, and, and no. gunnery training was a particularly, obviously, particularly dangerous one. But some of those risks are overlooked. Yeah.
Now we've just turned around here and there's another startlingly yellow aircraft but it's uh, a little bit of an earlier era and it's one of your absolute favourites. So we're looking at the Walrus. Indeed, yes. Uh, so it's just a beautiful aircraft. The Walrus was, was designed by RJ Mitchell, famous of course for the Spitfire, although he only designed the Spitfire prototype. It was uh, Joe Smith who designed, was the lead designer for everything after the prototype. Um, but RJ Mitchell was a very good seaplane designer and um, and one of the, uh, the jewels in his crown was, was the Walrus. Very important to Australia because the Walrus only really got to go into production because Australia ordered 24 Seagull 5s um, when the British weren't that interested in the design. The uh, Supermarine had built them, built a prototype on a sort of speculative basis but hadn't flown it. We ordered 24, as I say, of these uh, Seagull 5s um, and had those and then the, um, the British ordered what they called the Walrus. It's the same aeroplane. The difference is that uh, Seagull had um, Handley Page uh, slats on the upper wing and uh, demountable um, jury strut on the folding wing cellular. Um, and basically you can't tell them apart unless you read the number other than that. Was the name changed because of the Ministry of uh, Aircraft's uh, penchant in, in England to um, name aircraft after a, in a certain scheme like, yes, like yes. Yeah, all the bombers were after cities and that's right, right. marine aircraft after marine cities and so on and so yeah. forth yeah I think so um, although the walrus is a bit of an odd one even in that sort of system and you know it's a bit of an inst well, walruses I'm sure fellow walruses love them but it's not a very handsome handsome beast and um, I think the, the Seagull 5 is one of the most beautiful uh, and the walrus aircraft is one of the most beautiful aircraft out there D Dave's looking a bit dubious here but no no I'm not I, I, I do think it's a beautiful aircraft and I've talked to a few people who flew in them during the war. Um, one as a pilot, one as a as a gunner. Yep. Uh, and uh, actually, I also knew a chap who um, was one of the mechanics and used to have to get up on top of that wing there and and tink yes. tinker on on the uh, on that big engine, the big old Pegasus engine, uh, on the back of a ship. Um, very brave men and and wonderful stories attached to them. And of course. Now, I don't know if you know this, but ESC Rescue and the RAF was started by a New Zealander in a walrus in, in England. I didn't know it was a New Zealander, Dave. Mm, yeah. um, I, I, um, people forget that ESC Rescue during the Battle of Britain didn't really exist. The Germans, ironically, had a good system, but our guys didn't. And so as a result, um, a lot of our guys drowned during the Battle of Britain. It was only later in that battle that the, the whole thing kicked off. And who, who was that, Dave? Uh, sadly, I can't remember his name offhand, but I do remember um, reading that it was a New, Zealander, New Zealand pilot um, with his crew and uh, basically decided let's go and get these guys, let's go and yeah. do something about it and, and it developed from there. So. It, well there were a lot of surplus walruses uh, in, in Britain at that stage because the Royal Navy had really not decided they weren't using them as much. There were not as much of an asset as they had, uh, had expected to be. So air sea rescue was definitely an option and um, yeah, uh, there's a lot of great stories I, I love to, to, to tell about the walrus but um, as I, I tell people it is the most beautiful aeroplane in the world because if you're sitting in a dinghy and you're going to not make it um, and you see this heave over the horizon in the air or maybe on the water, it becomes the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in the yes. world because yeah. it's going to save you. Now this, this colour scheme, the bright yellow, Yes. Um, is this a training scheme? Well, you'd think so, but no, it's actually much more unusual than that. This is painted in these colours because it was used in 1947 to go to a place called Heard Island, um, and uh, that's down sort of south, uh, and south of here and, and towards South America. So this aircraft flew one flight at Heard Island, which is a very small island. It has Australia's only volcano on it, um, Big Ben, um, to, for photographic reconnaissance and exploration. They pegged it out on the uh, on the uh, the beach there, and then it was rolled up into a ball by uh, very high winds um, that, that that night. Uh, I think 120 mile an hour winds. Um, 
so the guys who asked wrecked aeroplane, they just left it there until 1980 and the remains were brought back here and restored um, at the museum over a period of about 10 years. Um, so the walruses are very close to my heart for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is I researched this aircraft and um, uh, this was a, a key aircraft to be able to write my book on the Supermarine Walrus and Stranra, uh, which we recently republished I think a year ago with, uh, with MMP. Yeah. And um, uh, if you want to know about the walrus, it's a good place to start. There's some other excellent things out there on it as well. Um, but it's fascinating to research the aircraft and I'd love to go back and do more uh, of the, uh, the, the crew experiences and, and, um, and history behind it. Um, some of the stories I got told by, uh, by walrus crew are absolutely fascinating. But just to pick up on what Dave was saying there, the way they would recover these to a ship, so it would be fired off from a catapult, pretty impressive in itself, do its spotting of fall of shot from one fleet to our fleet on their fleet, which happened with the Battle of Cape Spartivento in the Mediterranean against the Italians, um, and then they would land the walrus back alongside um, the, the ship it was deployed with. That alighted on the water. Alighted on the water, yeah. thank you very much Dave, quite right. Um, Phil Vivery would tick me off as well for that. And um, it would alight, um, usually in a slack water area that had been set up by the, the ship turning. Um, and so on stormy days or bad weather conditions, they could do that. Yep. Then, the, So there'd be three crew normally. There'd be the pilot, um, observer and uh, wireless operator, operator air gunner who was usually a non-commissioned uh, rank and uh, usually the poorest paid of the three and he would have to climb, and I'm just indicating to Dave, up out of the cap cockpit onto the struts where you can just see some little footsteps here, onto the nacelle which is where the front of where the engine's on the back of and onto the top centre section which is covered in fabric and plywood and he would then, if he was a smart cookie, make sure the wire he had on his belt was attached to the wire uh, up there for him so that if he fell off the back he didn't go th through the prop and get yeah. turned into salami and then the ship would uh, swing out a crane and at the bottom of the crane um, would be what they call a Thomas grab, a kind of complex hook arrangement. He would grab that, hopefully not with his teeth, um, and hook that to another one of the, the sets of wires up there and they'd haul the whole thing back on board ship. Uh, you said that it's covered in uh, fabric and plywood, but don't yeah. forget, it, in the operational condition, it's probably also covered in sea spray and oil. Absolutely, yeah, you know, salt, um, slippery, slippery water, the whole uh, oil, lots of oil chucked around from that radial engine. Um, I don't know if people killed in those operations, but you would never get it through modern health and safety. And if you watch on YouTube some of the helicopter operations of, in modern navies where they you know, they fire a harpoon into the deck, mm. basically, or yeah. up of the, sh the aircraft and winch it on, the difficult, I mean, we lost a, a crew and a, and a helicopter only a couple of years ago um, uh, in the Royal Australian Navy um, in, a, in a bad incident. Um, the, the helicopter and crew went overboard. Um, it does happen that they did this in such primitive ways and, and walruses and seagulls operated all the way from the Arctic Circle on the Russian convoys uh, all the way down to Antarctica with this particular one here and east and west. One even ended up in Russia, an ex-Royal Navy one, um, which is a fascinating story. So it's a world-spanning aeroplane. It is. I could go on about the walrus all day, but we I, won't I do think that. I think you could, but uh, <laughs> we've we've sort of seen the collection now, haven't we? No, no, we've seen a good chunk of it, but there's a couple more hangers. There's what we call Hangar 180, which is the um, kind of an, an open storage display. Um, unfortunately, closed at the moment because we have some tarmac problems. We aren't able to have a look in the restoration hangar. Um, the restoration hangar um, has uh, uh, the mosquito that's being rebuilt here, one of the last PR. Uh, it's a PR-16, it's a genuine PR-16, unlike the Ringer in the United States Air Force Museum, which is a B-35, uh, painted up as a, as a PR-16. And this one has actual wartime World War II operations and a couple of our airworthy aircraft. Normally we would be, um, we would have um, a flying display, uh, the interactive flying display on Tuesday, Thursday and Sunday here at the museum, but unfortunately because of these tarmac uh, works, we're not able to do that at the moment. 
and there's another hanger, the strike hanger. Unfortunately at this point, circumstances intervened and we didn't actually get into those other hangars. But we did get to do some interviews that you can hear after the break. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. I'm standing in the Point Cook Museum with Andy Wright. Hi Andy. G'day Dave, good to finally meet you. Yeah, it's really great to finally catch <laughs> up. We've been friends online for a long, long time now. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I just wanted to catch up and have a wee chat to you about your aircrew book reviews. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Tell me how it all started. Uh, it, well, I pretty much uh, started, well, I was reading these books probably 15 years ago and uh, World War II, RAF and Commonwealth aircrew books, memoirs, that sort of thing. And I just started realising as I discovered new books online that, or wanted to look up a book that a lot of them didn't have an online presence, particularly right. the older ones, yep, like yep. even stuff from the 1980s, yep. early 90s. So I thought, all oh, these stories need to stay out there and uh, be shared with the new generation. And obviously people like me, other, other people later on are going to come along and say, well, what's this book about? So I thought I'd start reviewing the, the older titles and it's kind of gone from there. It's a really good idea and you know people can just go to Google, look up the book title and they'll find your site and, and get a, an honest review from someone who's got that really deep knowledge of uh, how things work for air crew and, and uh, various um, military air forces and do you do much civilian air crew stuff? Uh, <clears throat> uh, on occasion. Uh, it's, it's more if someone asks me to, to review it. Um, I'm not going to knock them back because I also like to help out authors as well. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of self-published guys out there who, who um, pretty much showing do everything themselves from the the marketing, obviously the writing and all the work, but the the marketing and uh, yeah. publishing and then trying to get into shops and things like that. So, right, right. happy to help. Yeah, cool. What's your favourite era? Um, <laughs> what, what, what's what's the books that you really uh, like to read? World War Two, yeah. by far and away. Uh, and it, but probably. I was thinking the other day, actually, it's been at least 10 years since I've read something about, well, by a Japanese author, uh, not counting um, the recent Eagles of the Southern Sky about the Tainan uh, Naval Air Group, which is a bit of a uh, conglomerate of uh, Japanese and Australian and American uh, air crew stories anyway. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't do German stuff, <laughs> which is probably... I mean, it's pretty, very, very um, uh, single-minded of me, but my theory is... I'm Australian, you know, so I've got the Commonwealth bent, so RAF and Commonwealth Air Forces, South Africans, Kiwis, yeah. uh, the Canadians, that sort of thing. Uh, that's what I know, yeah. um, so that's that's what I review. Yeah, and um, have you got any favourite books that, that have, um, you know, of all the books that you've read and reviewed, are there any that really stand out? Uh, it's probably more the ones that uh, I've had a bit of a personal connection with. Uh, uh, Mike Crosley's They Gave Me a Seafire, I've banged on about that a fair bit online. Yep. Uh, that's that that was that is a brilliant book to begin with. Anyway, there's quite a number of Kiwis in it as well, yep. being fleet air arm, of course. And it's a very good book about the shortcomings of the fleet air arm and how basically the guys, the air crew, and and uh, the, you know, the guys who support them, of course, 
did you know achieved a lot with what they had yep. and but by the end of the war the fleet air arm was a pretty was a very effective force particularly in the pacific well everywhere really yeah. uh, but the british pacific fleet was like the ultimate i guess development of that in the war and i, I had some personal contact with uh, his wife and uh, joan crosley and he he was just before he passed away joan uh, uh read uh, my review to him yep. which which was yeah, it just blew me away really so that's other than being a good book that's one with a really good personal um, con- um, connection yeah, and it's quite special around yeah I was just yeah still blown away by it really but yeah. and that's come into a second edition now as well which has sold really well which is great um, and probably the other one is Murray Peden's uh, who's a Canadian uh, thousand shall fall he was a sterling pilot with 214 squadron uh, and did a lot of was lucky really to get out of main force uh, so that he survived for a bit longer but then ended up doing uh, bomber command countermeasures flying fortresses right so pretty much attracting the night fighters to them okay right. so that the, the main force wasn't hit but that's a very 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 well written book and I probably uh, giggled and laughed and then uh, got quite sober in about the first 10 pages right. so right. <laughs> it's one of those books yeah so yeah. Um, I'll put you on the spot. Have you got any favourite Kiwi stories? <laughs> uh, Under and Bobman's Moon by Stephen Harris, yep. uh, which is a fairly recent one, that's as much a, a journey of discovery for him as it was for finding about his uncle's career. Uh, and that's a really nice little paperback, which again has also gone into a second edition in England as a hardback, which is great to see. Right. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Spitfire Leader, the Rosie Mackey book by... Max Avery and Christopher Shaw's. Yep. Uh, the Wild Winds by uh, Paul Sorterhawk. Yep. Big book. Actually got that in the um, Royal New Zealand Air Force Museum. Yep. I saw it. I'd never seen a copy before, and it literally leapt into my hands. So yeah, had to buy it. Right. <laughs> um, and um, oh, there's this there's a number of Kiwi books. I mean, nothing coming to mind. I'll just quickly check my notes here. <laughs> you have notes. <laughs> I, I thought I'd, I thought I'd try and be prepared. Oh, Tempest Pilot um, oh, by yep. Shedden, of course. Yeah. Um, and I got to interview Jim Shedden oh, not did you? long before he died, and oh, golly. what a character! I mean, it comes through in his book, but he's even more of a character in mm. real life. And uh, what a privilege it was to sit there and, you know, he's he was really animate, animated and um, lively and and just an amazing guy. And he's a leg- he was a legend, mm. you know, in the squadron and rose to become the squadron commander which is amazing because of the number of things he's stuffed up <laughs> along the way um but yeah it's a great book as well mm, hell of a survivor as well it's um yeah. I, I haven't geez, i haven't read that book for probably 15 years but uh you know i, I spent so every now and then I, I find a bit of time to just kind of stare at the shelves yep. and remind myself of what i do have in my future reading <laughs> which right. makes me quite happy but um I'm, i've always been keen on um kiwi books obviously uh, um Kiwi publishers, I've always said, make a really nice paperback. Right. And um, I mean, Clayton's Last Stand in Singapore. That's a that's a gorgeous book. That's a great and book. Yeah. I cannot wait for his next one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The second part of yeah, uh, for yeah. the squadron. Um, yeah, but that, just the layout of that book in particular is just different, and uh, use of colour and just yeah, he did really well. Uh, yeah, crikey! I mean, probably name a Kiwi book and. 
I, if I don't have it, I want it. So. <laughs> One that comes to mind is uh, Brendan Dare's book on the restoration of a Spitfire and the old air story. I do have that as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's a remarkable mm. book. Isn't mm. It? Mm. Yeah. it is. It is, and and the format, large format, hell of a lot of colour, um, and pretty much the story of that Spitfire and his uncle, of course, or great uncle, I think it was. Um, uncle. Um, yeah, from and it kind manufactured of, a restoration. The way that he's brilliant. done the book, though, it, it, it actually caters to everybody. It's, mm. it's got yes. the bright, shiny coloured photos, and it's got really good uh, in-depth story of the the story of his uncle, the story of the Spitfire, mm. and the story of the restoration. That's right. And, and yeah. I mean, you put a Spitfire on the cover of something, and it's it's always going to attract attention, even for people who um, you know just have a passing interest. But to do a book that's uh, can it can attract that sort of attention, but also get the uh, for want of a better explanation, the rivet counters, <laughs> the, yeah, the modellers and the yeah. detail guys, yeah. you know, for them to to get something out of it as well. That's that's a hell of an achievement, and um, I mean probably that would be the the most recent large format Kiwi book I've got, and that's probably from five years ago now. So um, I mean that you know, you have a limited budget, but uh, that again I think was the the New Zealand Air Force Museum. Uh, and again, that had to that leapt into my hands. So yeah. it turned out to be an expensive afternoon, <laughs> but <laughs> money well spent, though. So. Well, tell people um, where they can find your website. Uh, it's called uh, Aircrew Book Review. Uh, it's Aircrew Book Review. Dot Blogspot. Dot Com. Dot Au forward slash. And or just Google Aircrew Book Review, and I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, that proves to be a bit of a faster way of updating. Um, little bits and pieces like if a book comes out that sort of thing because I usually spend about three hours writing a review and but of course before I do that I have to read the book yeah so I'm not going to write a review a review until I've read it cover to cover so excellent well thank you very much Andy no worries thank you good to meet you and you and we hope to hear more from Andy in the future on the Wings Over New Zealand show but after the break we'll be talking with a couple of the uh, stalwart restoration men at Point Cook Extended the ETOPS Aviation Podcast aviation-extended.co.uk and remember there's no e at the beginning of extended extended i remember some men started prying and others started crying um part way through it one guy got to his feet and started to run i was scared to let that be no secret Next thing they set the spandar up there and they opened up and there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. My co-host James Kitely and I 
moved outside where we had a bit of a chat with Ron Gretton and Jeff Matthews. And we're here at the Royal Australian Air Force Museum Point Cook with a couple of good friends of mine and uh, an Air Force veterans and vintage aircraft people. We have yeah, Ron Gretton and uh, I'm a uh, restorer of aircraft down at the RAF Museum after having spent about 40 years in the Royal Australian Air Force as an Air Force engineer. Yep. And Jeff Matthews. All of the above. Um, <laughs> I joined the Air Force in 1949 as a 16-year-old apprentice, uh, 37 years, went right up through the ranks to warrant officer, got a commission, then through, through the commissioned ranks up to wing commander, and I retired back in 1986. Only a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, yeah. And um, Ron saw the little home-built aeroplane that I brought down here and wanted me to do some fabric work on the walrus, which you probably saw in the hangar over there. I did, yes. And I started on that 20 years ago, and I haven't escaped since. <laughs> <laughs> is it 20 years? That's amazing. The, the walrus is a terrific restoration, one of my favourite aircraft. I can actually say I've written a book on it, partly through uh, help with these gentlemen here. And, um, of course, we only have a very few walruses left. There's a Seagull 5 with the Royal Air Force Museum over in the United Kingdom. We have uh, the walrus here, and there's a couple more walruses in the UK, but that's, that's our lot. Um, tell it's us interesting that we had Seagull 5s here, and yes. the only Seagull 5s back in England, and the walrus is what we've got here. So. I I don't think we should try swapping them though. I think we're happy with what we got, particularly I think we've since we've got the best end of the deal. <laughs> yeah. So you, the, the walrus here was um, was uh, wrecked on Heard Island in Antarctica, and um, it was brought back to Australia in it was wrecked in 1947, if I remember correctly, and brought back to Australia as wreckage in 1980, which is what you guys started with, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. But first of all, it wasn't down in Antarctica. It was at Heard Island, which is about halfway between Australia and South Africa, and about 600 miles north of uh, Antarctica. Okay. But it was down there to do survey work in 19, 40, December 1947, and it went down on a ship, uh, um, a, uh, a ship landing tank, and uh, with a with a crew of Anari people, which is the Australian National Antarctic Research Exploration Group, and uh, it was to do aerial surveys of Heard Island. Right. It did one flight, and uh, that was quite successful, and came back and was beached, and then that night they had 120 mile an hour, which is about 150 kilometres an hour winds through, and unfortunately the aircraft got blown over and wrecked and that's where it lay till about 1980 when it was picked up as a wreckage and being sandblasted over all those years there was, wasn't that much of it left and had been pilfered and so we got back uh, just an absolute wreckage from which we started. So hang on, even in that remote spot people were pilfering bits off it? Oh there have been quite a few exploration groups down there since 1947 and I guess each group saw it as something to uh, hack about, shoot at, and uh, pilfer, and, and whatever uh, remained of it. Uh, and so that's why it, there was very little that came back. Human nature, eh? Human nature. Oh yes, that's the way it goes, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
was it a challenge to um, find the drawings and, and all the uh, necessary bits and pieces? Well, it wasn't a challenge to find the drawings. We got those from the RAF uh, Hendon Museum, a full set. But uh, finding the bits and pieces was quite a challenge. And, uh, and they came from quite a number of sources. Uh, firstly, the um, Camden Air Museum. Um, where we got the nacelle and, and uh, interplane struts and a number of other items and then we picked up um, a number of spar pieces tailplane spar pieces and uh, from uh, New Zealand Air Force who kindly donated those to us and then we ended up with a number of front and rear spars main wing spars from a guy called um, Bill uh, whatever his second name is, I can't remember, who died recently, who was up at the the um, uh, Tokemall uh, Gliding Club. He he had um, placed them there when he left um, Sydney. So um, that and with us being able to manufacture uh, different bits and pieces, it's enough for us to uh, put a complete aeroplane together. Fantastic. I think just to come in at that point, people who don't know the walrus, I, I know there's a couple of aviation enthusiasts out there who are not familiar with the walrus as everyone should be because it's one of the truly great aircraft, the greatest design of a gentleman by the name of RJ Mitchell who did some other things that are not nearly as important like the Supermarine Spitfire. Um, yeah, the, the walrus is an interesting construction. The fuselage of this one is a standard um, stress skin uh, rib uh, and, uh, and skin construction, but the wings have stainless steel spars and uh, the, uh, the interstices, uh, the, the, the ribs of the wings, are a mixture of, of metal and wood uh, construction. Uh, the way the museum has the aircraft displayed now actually has um, one of the wings is uh, clear covered with clear plastic and uh, so you can actually see that particular structure the guys put together but stainless steel spars are a great idea when you have the aeroplane you're building it originally but it's a little bit more challenging for restoration so well those spars that we found in the hangar up at Tokemol helped us out in fact one of the spars is actually a seagull five spar because it's got the holes in it for the slat Right, because the Seagull 5 and the, and the Walrus, very similar aircraft, but it's a couple of distinguishing features that their nearest and dearest can tell them apart, and the, the Seagull 5s, uh, A2-1-24, all had uh, Handley Page uh, slats on the top wings. Okay, and you've obviously worked on some other aircraft here, and one of the um, aircraft I know that's close to James's heart is the Bristol Boxcote. Can you, t can you guys tell us a little bit about that? Well, the Boxcart was the first military aeroplane to operate in Australia. In um, it made its first flight here in 1914, 1st of March 1914. Yep. Um, and the anniversary of that, the 100th anniversary, came up last year, of course. And Ron and I, some years ago, thought that that was an event worth commemorating and what better way to commemorate it would to make one and actually fly it here on the 100th anniversary. So we, we started working out a plan on how to do it. Um, we did a, a sort of a rough design and a costing on how much it would cost to, to build it. And um, we talked to the director of the museum and asked whether he would condone us doing it, um, whether he was prepared to accept the aeroplane, uh, and he was. Uh, and um, then 
Ron and I, having been in the Air Force for many years, had a lot of contacts. We went around and we talked to people and told them what we wanted to do and asked whether they were prepared to help. And our initial costing was, you know, the wood was going to cost so much, the fabric was going to cost so much, all this sort of thing. We went to people and asked them whether they were prepared to help us out. And everyone that we spoke to was very generous. And the way we approached it is we sourced the material, worked out how much it was going to cost, and asked our sponsor to buy it and deliver it here to us. So we didn't ever deal in any money. And it worked perfectly as a system, didn't it, Ron? Yes. Um, and we did that right through the whole project. In fact, I think we came out very close to our original estimates in terms of expenditure. Um, it didn't cost the museum anything, um, as far as getting the airframe was concerned. Yep. Um, the biggest expenditure item was an engine. Um, uh, the original aeroplane had a gnome rotary, um, and unfortunately they're as scarce as hen's teeth, and I'm um, not sure that we would have wanted to run one of those anyway. But the Rotec people uh, over the other side of Melbourne were making uh, a seven-cylinder radial engine which put out 110 horsepower, which was just about the right size and weight for this project, and we got a very good deal on one of those, so that's what we bought. And they, that company also made the mounting and the tanks for us, fuel and oil tanks. And um, that sort of was the heart of the aeroplane. Uh, they also supplied a propeller, which was made by a guy called um, Wayne Holden. Wayne, yeah. Wayne Holden up at Lightning uh, Ridge. Lightning Ridge in um, far north of um, New South Wales. And um, um, we did the design work and the construction of all the bits and pieces in that wooden building just down the road there where the Bloodhound Missile is. Right. So that was our home and uh, we uh, made all the parts down there. A um, lot of um, steel fabrication. We got laser cut and welded by friends over in Williamstown. Um, well, one of the things you've kind of ju jumped over there, Geoffrey, is that uh, there were no known box kite plans uh, when we started. And I remember um, a lot of the data came from uh, a single three-view drawing, you'd, like you'd have for a model or whatever, from uh, 1911 flight. Yeah, th that's correct. Um, we knew that there were drawings around, but we couldn't pin them down as to where they were and who had them. Um, but there were three aeroplanes built in 1964 for the film, those magnificent men in their flying machine. Right. And it was flown in the in the film as the Phoenix Flyer. The Americans' which, aircraft, in yeah. fact. Uh, and it was a fairly close to what the box kite looked like. And those three replicas are still in existence. One's at the Shuttleworth Trust, which yep. you've probably seen. Yep. One's in the Bristol Museum in Bristol City. And the third one is actually in Australia, and at the moment it's in the um, Army Museum of Aviation up at Oakey in Queensland. We made a few trips up there and had a look at that, took lots of photographs, got a lot of help from Mr Kitely here, and um, we took a lot of dimensions off that, and we used the original flight magazine dimensions as the standard to work from, because that was 1910, so it was close to right. 
that, that drawing there. Oh, and, yes. and it's got dimensions on it, and that's the basic dimensions of our aeroplane. We used the construction methods that F.G. Miles used in 1964 to make the replica, and that's what we turned out. Um, unfortunately, it's overweight, and there are a few design problems with the airframe. It's a fully lifting tail, for instance, and in modern technology, that's an absolute no-no because you've got your engine thrust going over that and you open the throttle and it lifts the tail, pitches the nose down, it does everything back to front as far as modern aerodynamics are concerned. And that was proved out in the flight testing of the thing that it didn't fly as well as it could have flown. Uh, we would like to do a bit of development work on it, um, but that's another story. But I think um, Jeffrey, like a lot of very talented people, is a little harsh and sees the flaws rather than the picture. I think the really important bit is that the aircraft was actually flown on the uh, the time the Air Force said the centenary was of the very first flight on the 1st of March 1914 and we were able to fly the replica. The weather was a bit iffy, it was all a bit touch and go, but we managed to have the aircraft fly here at Point Cook 100 years to the day and the Air Force says 100 years to the hour. Um, except day so daylight saving. Except daylight saving, <laughs> Thank you. And, um, and there, you know, not a lot of people can claim that to have basically designed an aircraft from scratch and got the thing up and flying on a, on a, uh, on a critical anniversary. I have here a copy of the book that we put together afterwards. Um, Jeff and Ron did the, a lion's share of the work and I did all the other hard work of putting the book together as a, uh, a writer and publisher. Um, we also had uh, Andrew Willocks, who is a ter very talented designer and also very involved with aircraft um, restoration now, um, designed the book and developed it with us. So there's a team of four of us for the book, um, which is available from the museum shop. It's called um, Bristol Box Kites at Point Cook. I'm not promoting it really heavily to you folks because there's only a few left. So if you really want one, you need to do it quickly. But uh, it's got a lot of cool things. We're just having a quick look here, as well as the drawing we just talked about, at a photograph we took from the pilot's seat view. And um, obviously uh, you, you can't see the picture, but what, what you can look at here is basically a lot of strings and wires, some instruments that Jeffrey felt were necessary to put in that the original aircraft didn't have. Um, he felt the pilot should have some idea of what's going on and I don't think you should tell pilots too much really Jeffrey. I think they, they're bad enough as they are without more information. Um, a big stick, it actually has a side stick controller over to the, um, the right hand. Pilot sits here and you've got the control column out there. Out for, off which to one side. ergonomically is very bad because your shoulder muscles don't work too well in that sort of thing and that's one of the things that test pilots complained about. But what we wanted to reproduce was what was here in 1914 right. and that was the whole aim of the exercise, reproduce what was here in 14, fly it a hundred years later, we met that objective. Absolutely. Now it's, it sounds like Ron and I did all the work, that's not true, no. there were lots of other people helped us along the way, where we wanted a specialist job done, we lent on people and they did it for us. So. There were a lot of people, and they all get credit in the book. Absolutely. At the back of the book, there's a, there, there was a, a key supporters, and, and many other people made uh, apparently small contributions out of all of which were vital in, in one way or another. But I think also, as I wasn't involved in the actual hard work at the initial stages, credit to Jeff and Ron, who, are, who will blush now, but for actually having the idea and, and bringing it together. And we, um, I'm very proud of the guys. I'm very proud to call them friends and, and uh, colleagues to have helped. Um, but it's a, it's a terrific, terrific job. And um, to have built a box kite, this is the... Uh, the second box kite actually to have been built at Point Cook. Um, Jeffrey 
What's, what was the first box kite to be built here? That's a fascinating story too. Yeah, well, they got the first one um, in 1912, I think it was, and then it was delivered here, made its first flight in 1914. They decided they wanted another one to keep their flying training going. And, of course, the First World War had started and the Brits said, oh, no, 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 no we we're too busy. And um, But the locals assembled one, and I think what they did is they used a lot of spare parts. Right. Because yep. when they bought this aeroplane, they didn't just buy the aeroplane, they bought spare parts. And they made an aeroplane out of spare parts. The guys that were here at Point Cook in the early days, uh, they listed in here, right? I think you've listed a few of them. They were all fairly competent tradespeople. So they built a copy of the aeroplane here at Point Cook. And they operated successfully for a bit under a year before some of one of them rotten pilot chaps pranked it, it. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't fix it. Now, the box kite only operated here at Point Cook for about three years, from about 14 up till 17 when the flying sort of tapered off here at Point Cook towards the end of the First World War. And most box kite had a fairly short life, although there were 120... 100 I think it's in the book, but what we're getting here is that there is some dispute of the exact numbers, depending well, whatever, on what you count. Quite a lot. In a 120-ish number, yeah. I think. And not many of them lasted very long. No, they didn't, <laughs> but two things I think are very important about the box kite in that context. One is it was one of the very first production aircraft. Bristol would claim the first. Other companies claimed to have production too around that time, but it was... 176. 176, uh, Ron's just remember. Thank you, Ron. Um, but uh, to actually have an aircraft in production, it was off the drawing board uh, production aircraft, really, although there was a few uh, finaglings at the beginning. The other thing is, although they crashed them on a regular basis and broke them and repaired them and broke them and repaired them which they did a lot of here with the first one as far as we've ever tracked down nobody was ever killed in a box kite which is a pretty creditable uh, achievement it, it's perhaps less surprising when you realize the absolute top speed over a cliff going vertically downwards is something in the order of 45 miles an hour um, and there's an awful lot of crumple zone with the wings nose and tail when you arrive at the scene of any accident but even so that's a pretty good uh, pretty good achievement I think yeah. it was a very primitive contraption um, the world passed it by very quickly uh, and the First World War came along in 1914 and the development of aircraft, in fact all machinery, went ahead in enormous leaps and bounds in that four years of the First World War. Yeah. So this was the beginning. We've got to bear in mind that it was designed in 1910 and it was four years old by the time it was flown here and you go another four years up to 1918 and you know you've got a logarithmic curve of, of progress during the first world war Absolutely. same thing happened in the second world war Absolutely. indeed yes yeah. well, you were going to say well i was just going to say that, that uh, we've got to bear in mind there were two types of box kites yes one was a standard box kite and then there was the military box kite a standard box kite had equal wingspan and the military box kite has an extension on the upper wing at each end so um, we only ever had the military box kite and uh, two of those. Right. 
And it's a, it's a little point I like to, as someone who lived a long time in the United Kingdom and a great admirer of the Shuttleworth Collection, who did provide us with uh, various kinds of help over the program and the test test program, um, they have a box kite, they fly on a regular basis, but our one's a bit bigger than theirs, so uh, we, we feel we've got the biggest uh, box kite around because uh, of that extra wingspan. Just a little joke, they, they, they do a terrific job. They've been flying their box kite for uh, half a century now, which is a flip side to what Jeffrey just said in terms of uh, how long these air craft lasted that's an amazing thing in, in it in itself yes, yes. well I mean that's a fascinating story it's a it's a, a credit to the achievement that you guys have um, put together and um, I think we should uh, I think we should ask uh, Ron a little bit about his past because he has a dark secret in his Air Force career which is he spent time on the other side of the Tasman working with the uh, the New Zealanders I understand well, I was enlightened actually by the Kiwis, yes. And uh, I had a tour with the Kiwi Air Force for two years uh, at the Air Force base at Fenorpai and uh, working on Orions and uh, C 130Hs. And uh, as the engineer officer there under a squadron leader, uh, and it was a great time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, our firstborn is a Kiwi. But she often says when she was little that she was a Maori. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't quite right. <laughs> so you had a wonderful time in New Zealand. Just give us a run through, uh, as, as Geoffrey did earlier, from your early days in the, joining the Air Force. I joined the Air Force in 1958 as a, an apprentice at our apprentice uh, training school at Wagga in New South Wales. And uh, I did my basic trade uh, as an instrument fitter and graduated as such. And then there was a scheme going whereby... If you studied extra time at night, that entitled you to be considered to, to um, uh, go down to the RMIT, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, to do a diploma course, which um, I did that and graduated there with a mechanical engineering degree and came out as an engineer officer and then spent um, the rest of my time as in my Air Force career right through to my retirement in 97 as an engineer officer on in various appointments um, and various bases, working on different types of aircraft. Well, that's a long career, isn't it? Oh, yes. For an Air Force yeah. career, that's great. And you did a lot. I mean, one other aircraft which we'll just touch lightly on um, is that uh, Ron uh, was one of the key people who restored the uh, Hawker Demon uh, here uh, in cooperation with a lot of other people. One of the people I'd like to mention is you worked with a, a particular gentleman a little older than you on the Demon. Who was that? My dear father. <laughs> yeah, my dear father helped us out uh, a bit. But I worked uh, in conjunction with a a well-known warbird uh, chap called Jack McDonald, who was an ex-Air ex Force guy, who was building a Hawker Demon to fly. And uh, we got together, shook hands and said, well, let's build two aeroplanes, you build yours to fly and we'll build ours for the, uh, as the restoration of the RAF Museum. And that's what happened. Uh, Jack McDonald is still putting his Demon together. And I believe that's uh, continuing to happen up in Queensland at Caboolture at the moment. It is indeed, yes. Uh, whereas ours is a finished one and uh, it looks great in our Air Force Museum as a static project. Terrific, absolutely. Um, I think one other thing we should we should um, go back to Jeff because he talked a bit about his fascinating Air Force career, but that's not the only thing. Um, you have uh, experience with yachting and you have your PPL. You've owned a couple of fascinating aeroplanes, and before uh, designing the box kite, I believe you uh, home built something. 
Yeah, I started uh, flying in 1956, the Illawarra Flying School, uh, flying osters, tiger moths, aeroplanes like that. Um, I even flew the Monospar ST-12, which is currently in England being rebuilt. Uh, one of the few Monospars left, and I did about 13 hours, I think, and then I went solo in that with only 75 hours total time in my logbook. Which I thought was rather good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, no, no damage caused by you to that aircraft. Any oh, damage definitely not. Yes, no, definitely no, not. No, no. <laughs> and um, um, you know, I got posted north up to Amberley. Went over to the States for five months. Um, got an American license while I was over there. Flew a Piper Tri Pacer, a Cessna 172, a Piper J3, a Mooney 8, um, M18, a Mooney Might, little single seat aeroplane, wow. which was good fun. Um, came back to Australia and bought a Hornet Moth, um, flew that all over Eastern Australia. I had to sell that when I went up to uh, Malaya. Came back from Malaya a few years later and bought a Stitz Flutterbug wreck and rebuilt that. Um, and um, after a while I decided that flying was too expensive and took up yachting. <laughs> um, uh, Did you discover that yachting is also Yeah, quite... a, a yacht is a hole in the water lined with paper. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, uh, last yacht I had was a 53-foot catch, which was great fun, um, but it just got a bit too much. Um, my son used to f- sail with me quite regularly, but um, he was doing his um, bachelor, um, not bachelor, um, Masters? PhD, PhD wow. um, at Monash University, so he wasn't available. Sold all the yachts, and I bought a um, a Rans S7 kit and built that quite successfully. My son got interested in flying, so I bought a 172, and he learnt to fly here on a, in the 172. I still have those two aeroplanes, but unfortunately I can't fly anymore for health reasons and we still have to work out what to do with them. Well, it's been a pretty good flying career anyway you cut it. I think you've oh, had a yeah, lot of amazing experiences too. 50 years of light aeroplanes, and that's where the enthusiasm came from. Yeah. You mentioned you went up to Malaya. Was that during the Malayan emergency? Yeah. What, what were you doing? No, not the emergency, confrontation, confrontation with Indonesia. Yeah. What, what were you doing up there? Hmm? What were you doing up there? With the, um, I was a wonder officer in charge of maintenance of the... Uh, uh, air defence radar site at um, at Butterworth oh, right. in yeah. Malaya. Yep, yep. So um, Jeff, Jeffrey has a lot of experience with scary black boxes, don't you? Things that that smoke, give off smoke and sparks if they're not paying proper attention. Well, air defence radar systems, big ones, ones <laughs> where you open the door and got inside them to maintain them. <laughs> Real equipment, not this modern solid state stuff. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, well, most of my technical work was with um, air defence radar, air traffic control radar, control towers, navigation aids, and ground communications like HF stuff. So, uh, real stuff with valves. You know where you are with valves, don't oh, you? Oh yes. yes, if they glow yes. in the dark, you're right. <laughs> Well, that's terrific, gentlemen. I, we could go on talking a lot long, longer, but we're standing out here in the sun and the, and the wind. It's pretty and challenging. The and the flies. And the flies, indeed. know you're in Australia. Yeah. Um, we've been asking people at museums a couple of leading questions, and we're going to ask you this, this tough question. Um, given you've been involved with the museum, both of you, uh, for many years now, 
What is the one object you would you would say is really important? You'd either think is important to you personally, or it might be something you think is important to the people of Australia, or, or of global importance. You know, um, it's not one you can take home. It might be an aeroplane. It might be a, a document or a, or a piece of equipment. Um, and we haven't asked these guys these questions. This is a complete cold call. They're having to think fast, and we're getting that really worried engineer expression where they're asked to commit to something without having paperwork behind uh, it. Don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> if there was one thing you were going to point it at the museum, you say that's really important. What would it be, Jeffrey? Well, I, I Ron. Ron. Yeah, sorry. I, I just think one of the most important things is to be able to show our RAF historic heritage to the public. Yes. And, uh, the only really decent way of doing that is having a great facility to be able to do that and whilst the facility here at Point Cook is very good it probably can be improved and it really needs to be improved to keep up with the more um, advanced facilities that you see overseas so yes. we need probably here at Point Cook a better bigger more modern facility to show off all our aircraft and related heritage because we just don't have the space available for uh, for showing off all the assets that we do have here. A lot of them are tucked away and uh, and disassembled in aircraft uh, ways uh, um, and it's just um, a little bit disappointing and I think that's one of the things that could be improved on here at Point Cook. So that, that's a really good answer. You, you, what you'd like is a building we don't have yet which is very Quite much correct. A, a, yeah and I think well, I'd agree with that. Ron and I have worked together for nearly 20 years now on projects and uh, they still talk to each other and get on most of the time. Yes. Um, that's why we turn out projects and we actually finish things. Absolutely. Um, we've finished quite a few aircraft um, I don't suppose it hurt to say that there's probably another couple of hundred man years of work here in <laughs> yes. the museum to finish aircraft that are in the collection and need restoration yep. uh, because when the museum gets something uh, it's usually a wreck yes. unless they buy something like the the RE8 that you saw in there that's something that somebody else built. The museum has only five technical people on staff so there's little that they can do themselves hand-on other than day-to-day -day work yep. and a project like box kite and things like that can only be done outside the museum staff um, and uh, that's what we do we enjoy doing it you're going to have to tell us what your object is as well though Jeffrey what particular one thing you can't take the volunteers because they're a scary and wonderful bunch of people what what one object would you choose as being most important in the collection what objects are most important in the collection? Yeah. If you had to pick just one? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair I'm answer. I'm not quite sure what the question, what, why you're asking that question. Um, they're all important in their own way. Yes. Um, the walrus was a pretty good one, wasn't it, Ron? Yes. Um, we, we spent, well, other people did a lot of work. We had a sheet metal worker that did a lot of work on the fuselage on that. But then when it got down to detail work, like building the wings and making it all fit together, well, Ron and I did that. Yeah. Um, and we did it without too much interference, which was rather good. <laughs> and uh, that was a magnificent project, I thought. I really enjoyed that one. Then we did a couple of vampires, a couple of tiger moths, uh, 
I like doing fabric work, and um, I did fabric work, and Ron whisked off and did other things. Um, you rebagged the um, the Saltbridge pup oh, replica yeah, that, we have here. It's in the hangar there, the, the white one. Uh, I did all the fabric work on that, um, which I was rather pleased with. It turned out beautifully. Yep. Um, that black and yellow vampire I did the fabric work. People don't realise that it is a jet fighter had fabric work on it, but yeah. the the fuselage is steel tube with wood around it and the wood is protected with a fabric covering so yes. you can't see it but it's there. Yeah, exactly. And those that know where to look can see it's a very neat piece of fabric work with all the right pinking on the edge of the joints and so on of the of the uh, tapes. Yeah, well, y- you look at the, um, the BE-2 that Andrew Willock's built. That was a purely static aeroplane and he built it the way BE-2s were originally made with original materials I'm not sure that you'd want to do that on an aeroplane that was going to have a long life. Um, I, I know the RE8 is built that way, but that was built by a very experienced teal over in that island over the other side of the sea over there. That one, I, yes, I think they yes. call it New Zealand. That's right, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, that um, one. <laughs> whereas the, the box kite, we wanted a very simple airframe that was going to last for years without too much maintenance, and we used modern methods and from a distance, you stand back 10 feet, you can't tell the difference. And it's uh, one of the things that we found when we had the, um, one of the things we found when we had the box kite um, on show here at Point Cook for the, uh, the, the air show we had at the, in March uh, 2014, was that people were fascinated by it. They loved looking at it. And I th- we realized after a while, I think, that people couldn't see how a modern aeroplane works. It's all inside, but with the box kite, you can follow with your eyes the control cables from the, the stick to the uh, balancers. They didn't have ailerons, they had balancers or uh, to the tail and so on. Um, and uh, it, it, yeah, there were changes made to make it a viable aircraft, and uh, it's, but it, we're just so pleased to have actually had the opportunity to fly it after such a, a lot of work. It was a, it was a seven year project overall, I think. Yeah, two years of uh, basic planning and sorting out what needed to be done and how it could be done and how we could raise funds and then uh, about five years of building and it was uh, it all went together pretty well actually. The second one would have been much easier to make. <laughs> the second yeah. one, yes. It's always the way though, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we should, uh, we should very much uh, thank these gentlemen uh, for uh, a little chat about Indeed. some of the most fascinating highlights of careers and aircraft. Uh, thank you very much, Ron. Thank yes. you very much, Geoffrey. And uh, signing off. Thank you very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.